Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Andrew Bandy Smith. We're at Antiquum Farm in Junction City. It's July 27th, 2020. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, first question, the most important question for our purposes today is why wine? Oh, man. Uh, I, honestly, it, it could have been anything. It really, it really could have been anything. And I think it, I was, I was one of those kids growing up, uh, I grew up in Indiana and I kept taking aptitude tests, mm-hmm. right? Where they're like, what are, where are you going to go to school? What do you want to do with your life? And, um, the, the cohort of people that I was with, were being like, I want to be a lawyer, and then they take an aptitude test, and it's like, that's a great idea. You, you should, you should be, you should definitely go that direction. And you know, people kept finding out, and every time that I took a test, it came back basically saying, like, whatever you choose to do, like you're gonna, you're gonna be good at. And um, it took me a long time to find something that I could settle into because that actually felt to me more more challenging because it lacked focus and direction it was just sort of like en- en- enjoy everything which which seems to these days have fed in into the work that i i consider myself in the wine industry as more of a generalist i'm not i'm not a technician uh I, i'm not really apt at very uh, detail-oriented winemaking necessarily, and and it doesn't hold my interest that long. But what happens is that the entire world of wine is fascinating to me, and that runs from its its historical pieces, its religious context, its geography, uh, its economics, its sales and marketing, its science, its production, its food processing. Um, human resources. I'm very excited by human resources. <laughs> I like people to love their jobs and love doing their work. So I, it really could have, it really could have been anything. Mm-hmm. And that, that process, I, I grew up in a family that was very religious. And I, unlike a lot of people, I actually love that about my family. And, uh, you know, we, a lot of us end up on the West coast trying to run away from things and uh, I think I've always been in the midst of running from and to at the same time. My, my father is a Presbyterian minister. Uh, my brother is a pastor. My uncle is a pastor. It is, it is the family business. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I just ended up on the Eucharistic side of it. Uh, so I do, I do all the work in the blood. And, uh, and if, if, yeah, maybe I'll marry someone who owns a bakery and we'll, we'll, we'll shore up, um, yeah, uh, the entire, the entire Eucharistic experience, which would be, you know, very, very religiously oriented. So I, I think that, you know, growing up in a religious family, no one in my family drank anything as far as I knew. Uh, 
I found out when I turned 21 that my mom had been drinking wine for years and not, <laughs> not telling us. But you know, you, you grow up in a conservative area. There's a lot of, a lot of don't do's. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I've, I found my first sip of alcohol between my eighth grade and freshman year of, uh, of high school out of the back of someone's trunk in an Indiana summer. And it was a Paps Blue Ribbon that had been in there for I think three months. Uh, and I didn't drink beer for seven years after that, which actually I think proved great. <laughs> that was a that was a good decision, um, but it 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 sort of opened up a, a there's there are other things out here that I don't know about that I want to know about, and so in that then that generalist view, it started this path of well, what else is there? Like, what else have I been told? What else have uh, is part of the context that I'm in? What else is part of the culture that I'm in? Part of the religious belief that I hold? How does all of that fit together in how I'm going to live my life? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, went to, uh, I went to a conservative Christian uh, university in Indiana and my entire goal was to play soccer. I cared nothing about anything else. Didn't care about education. Uh, just wanted just wanted to play on this team and by uh, my sophomore year that i quit and was no longer satisfied with that experience i got back into into work that i uh experiences that i had done in the arts so i i played um the string bass since i was uh, 10 years old and so got back into playing an orchestra and i uh, was in theater and musical theater for years and years and years and got back into that and um you know, ended up traveling with a troupe doing, doing improv and uh, drama around the Midwest. And, um, you know, I just kept exploring and exploring and exploring. And, and uh, the first time that wine entered my context and my consciousness was a woman that I was dating, who I eventually became engaged to. Her dad was a former uh, naval officer and they lived in Milwaukee, and so I would I would go up to their house in Wisconsin, and they would always have port after dinner. And so I think it was probably like Sandeman's port, you know, just whatever was on the grocery store shelf, uh, and had a taste of it. And and like that first taste of beer, I went, I don't think I want to drink this anymore. The hangover was awful. Uh, you didn't even have to be you don't even have to be like inebriated with port. Like there's so much sugar in it. <laughs> Uh, that is just sort of like, whoa, like this is, this is intense. Like this is really sweet. Uh, not all part, by the way, a lot of it is, is fully dry and just fortified, but that, those particular renditions have a lot of sugar in them. Uh, so it was poured and then it led into, I mean, I remember this clearly a bottle of uh, Rancho Zabaco or Zabaco, whatever it is, Zinfandel from California that was there. And all of a sudden it was going from this fortified wine into something that was much, much drier and had tannin and um, had, you know, all of these different flavors. And I ended up at my little conservative Christian university where you were not allowed to drink at all, no matter your age. Uh, I had friends who got sent, sent to rehab for a picture being taken of them on spring break having it with a beer in their hands. Like no confirmation they actually taste, of course they taste it, but like, you know, <laughs> like in a, in a, in a Clinton-esque, like I didn't inhale kind of thing. Like everybody, everybody got in trouble. And I ended up in my little apartment by, the, by my junior year with, you know, a 12 bottle rack 
with wine sitting in it, and, and I didn't know why. There was no there was no clear reason why, except that I was fascinated by it. And I think especially as I moved off campus and started to cook for myself, and I would have people over for dinner that I was sort of like, oh, like, I think somewhere, like, I know that wine exists. I was a history major, and so that really, you know, when you walk through European history, wine is a is a is an intimate part of that. And so it was through that education of knowing that this thing existed, and it existed as part of of communion uh, within the church. It existed as part of a meal. Um, it existed as part of sustenance and not something to be feared, even if we're looking at biblical text, um, that there's engagement uh, over wine and being able to cook and bring other people into that, which then I got sent to the dean's office <laughs> for corrupting the youth, um, which I was like, yeah, totally, totally corrupting the youth. like. Um, this is yeah. I'm very good at this. This is you know, for sure. I'll pay you 50 bucks. Like what else? Do you, you know what else do you want out of this? Uh, which was actually a funny piece of me sitting there with the dean and him going, okay, so like we heard that people were at your house and that you were serving wine and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, totally true. Um, yeah, I, I like I need to be honest with you. I'm not going to stop. So either we're gonna have this conversation a lot, or you can save yourself some time. And he said, well. You've got to go do this like rehabby thing because you got busted and blah blah blah. Never heard another peep. Never, <laughs> never heard anything else, which is a, a strong note that honesty pays off. Uh, <laughs> not for the university, but uh, for for my own my own experience. So that you know there was just this ongoing sort of engagement with wine and, and curiosity, and I'm I'm just a curious curious person. I, I think in in general. Um, which led from also studying history to then also having a double major in philosophy uh, because I didn't ever want to get a job. <laughs> so then that, that seemed like a really liberal arts thing to do. Uh, so much so that I went, I remember going into the, uh, the, the career guidance office my junior year of college and I'd done all the resume work and said, here's what I'm interested in, here's what I'm studying, like, where should I go? And, and the woman who was in there uh, running the office at the time looked at me, she looked at, looked at my resume and the, what I had brought in, my transcripts, and looked back up and goes, I, I don't think that we can help you. <laughs> I was like, ma, okay. So not even a suggestion of pre-law, like not even, not even like, hey, do you think that this, like, I, you know, uh, and, and so I've, I've kind of been on my, really on my own going after a career. I knew, I knew that, that the church work as it was in my family wasn't necessarily for me. Um, and so I just, I was off, I was off on, on my path. And, uh, and it wasn't particularly that wine was there. It was just that I, I think that I enjoyed the, the utility of it and the experiences that it brought and the way that it it connected people. Uh, I was actually thinking. Uh, I was actually thinking yesterday about the 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 Latin. I think that gets thrown around a lot and and somewhat haphazardly as the the in vino veritas, you know that in wine there is truth. And and I was as I was thinking about it yesterday, it was it was sort of this thing of like I think sometimes that gets turned into like that there's truth in wine or there's truth that we find out by wine and 
it struck me as like, I, th I think that in Vino Veritas is really that the truth of ourselves is exposed by wine, that, that we become more honestly ourselves. So, so if you're a really good person and like you care about other people and you desire community and you want the best for other people as for yourself, like when, when you have wine, that is what comes out. If you're a piece of shit and you've been hiding it and like the, in, the internal part of yourself is, is messy and angry and like when you have wine, that's also the truth that comes out. So it, there was something, I don't know what, what else was going on in my brain yesterday, but that there was, there's this exposing element to this beverage. I mean, no one, I don't even know what the Latin for beer is, but no one talks about in beer veritas, <laughs> right? Or, or like in booze veritas, like it, you know, the Latin world was not interested. Um, the language of the Romans was not interested in that and probably because it was a bit plebeian right um it didn't you know there's sort of this high concept that goes along that goes along with wine uh which is why we still recite these sayings but but there's something in that that really struck me and so i i think that what i learned coming out of university as i was trying to figure out what career looked like and an occupation and growing up in a religious context we often talked about vocation mm -hmm. along with occupation mm -hmm. so not just the thing that i do but the thing the thing that i am for um th that how like how my being operates within the world uh that like that that ontology is actually critical to to my thinking and and wine served a place of like I, I love people. I want to see the most for people. I want to build community. And here's this, here's this connective piece that I experience truth in this thing and through this thing. So like, what is, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I graduated from university. My parents as a graduation present, uh, gifted me three months of, of living in a, in a, well, in an intentional community. It's really a commune, uh, in an intentional community in Switzerland. So I, I moved to Switzerland for three months and ended up um, studying this esoteric branch of uh, philosophy called philosophical hermeneutics with one of the world-renowned thinkers in that world. And um, in, that, in that place, so hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. It largely comes out of looking at biblical text, like that's the home of it. Mm -hmm. But it, it expanded through a uh, professor at the University of Chicago named Paul Ricoeur, and Ricoeur's work sort of expanded that into basically every other academic discipline. That, you know, that yes, you know, if I work in, uh, if I work in chemistry, for instance, that yes, I'm doing science, but I like what, what is like, how do I, how do I interpret my own approach to science? How do I interpret the texts of science, whether it's through the scientific method, through hypothesis that I develop, through what we know is, you know, looking at mathematics or how that works within a given field. So that even, even in what we would think of as like hard sciences, mm -hmm. there's always an interpretive element to that. Now, there are plenty of people who disagree with that and disagree with Ricoeur's work. I found it to be incredible. And so I went and studied with this guy named Greg Lowry, um, who was, was a student of Ricoeur and, and was really trying to take in this sort of experiential phenomenological experience um, and thought process about what that would look like. And, and I just didn't have anything to do for work. So going to live in a commune in Switzerland made a whole hell of a lot of sense. Uh, and that's when, you know, I started traveling a little bit more and, um, 
I had done some traveling, you know, to, I've been to, you know, South America and uh, to Europe previously when I was in high school. And so I, I had that bug and, um, and I think it was probably being in Switzerland and, you know, actually coming up a mountain um, just south of the, the city of Lausanne, you know, taking the train down and getting on a bus and coming up and coming through the first time that I had been through vineyards and knowing, knowing what they were and having, having an understanding of what they were, but I'd never been in one. I'd never seen one and going, huh, like this is a place steeped in history uh, with world wars that I've learned about, with um, religious wars that I've learned about, with uh, really interesting governmental structures. You know, Geneva is now the home of the UN. Uh, you know, like there's all of these things. And now here we're coming through this, this agricultural universe that I've never seen before, but I've enjoyed the product um, of that world. And it's just always this, this churning sort of thought of going, huh, I haven't, I haven't seen that before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I wonder, I wonder what that, what that looks like. Um, so I spent the three months, almost three months in Switzerland, kept studying. I had a buddy who called me and was like, Hey, I'm, I'm moving to Southern California to go get a degree in philosophy. Like, what are you up to? <laughs> I was like, well, I'm in Switzerland. Uh, I don't know that I want a master's degree. I want to do it, but like, I, are you just, you know, if you're looking for a roommate, like I'll move down, like I'll come out there with you and be your roommate. So, uh, I went, I went back to working at PF Chang's at the Irvine Spectrum, which I had done. I worked at PF Chang's through college and, uh, smoked pot and hung out on at Laguna beach and, uh, did that for about a year. And that was the first time that I went to a winery was down in Temecula never been to a winery before um, and was just sort of like ah uh, this is a world that's really fascinating like what are all these people doing out here in this windy very little water place somewhere west of east of san diego and southwest of orange county like what a what an interesting thing and i again like going into the experience um and the, having that churn uh uh, you know, for, for, you know, I think I went down to that, to Temecula pretty early in my time in, in Orange County. And as I ended, was getting finished with almost a year of being there, was kind of burning out on the restaurant thing, was looking for a job teaching high school at a private high school in Orange County. And all of a sudden I get a call from some really interesting connectivity where my parents had moved from where we grew up in Indiana to Montgomery, Alabama. And I got a call from a, a, a headmaster at a private high school and said, Hey, do you want to come teach uh, philosophy at a prep school in the deep South? And I just went, nah, I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> uh, so I moved to Montgomery, Alabama. And I taught philosophy and philosophy of religion for one school year at, at the Montgomery Academy. The definite article is very important to them. Um, and uh, my parents were living there in the city at the time. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law were also there at the time. Uh, within six months, all four of them had moved out of Montgomery and left me there. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, yeah, I think I'm good on, on this culture and, and on this space and uh, I decided that I was going to go back to Switzerland. So I, I moved back there for another three months and uh, after that eventually made my way out to Seattle to go to law school. Um, getting to Seattle 
Let's pause you for one yep. second. Seattle for law school. Yeah, so getting getting out to Seattle was uh, was an interesting an interesting endeavor. Um, I had finally come around, sort of in my in my thinking and in you know having having taught uh, and teaching the, these kids who I mean go on to really run a lot of pieces in the country. They're from very wealthy families. When I was living in Montgomery, um, they're some of the I mean some of the wealthiest families in the South, and um, realizing that like. Okay, like I, I spent a year mostly shaping them into disaster, I really feel like in the end. Um, uh, but going, okay, like what am I, what am I going to do to have a positive impact in the world? Because I actually didn't feel that great coming out of, out of that year of teaching. And I thought, okay, uh, I, like, I like conflict and I like conflict mediation. What, what can I do? Because uh, I always get in trouble for inserting myself in other people's shit and then trying to fix it for them. It's not a great place to be. People don't like that a whole lot. So what if I did it professionally where I got paid to do it? So I moved to Seattle to go to law school, to go to UW. It's uh, only one of two schools at that time in the country that had a, uh, a, a conflict mediation specialization within the, within, the legal, uh, within the law school there. So I get out to Seattle and um, my girlfriend at the time had been there for a year. She was working at a steakhouse uh, in downtown Seattle and said, hey, I think that there's another steakhouse closer to where you're living that's looking for a server. And so I immediately went down to this restaurant and put in an application and I got a call within a couple hours and um, started a job in this restaurant. Now, uh, one, of my, one of my favorite things in life is resume writing. Uh, I think it is it is an art that that is mostly because I've read so many bad resumes. Like I really enjoy writing them. Uh, this particular resume uh, said, "I know uh, there is no I in team, but there is meat, and I'd like to serve it at your restaurant." Really successful. Yeah, that that's got that got the call back, and that's and that's what the general manager told. He's like he's like I don't I didn't know if I was going to hire you, but I wanted to meet you. <laughs> and I was like, "That's right, that's right. You wanted to meet me. It's spelled differently, but but we're on the same page." Um, so I end I end up in this restaurant with, like, it's a steakhouse. Like it's not it's not rocket science, you know, selling steaks and you know selling crab and all that kind of stuff. But it had a wine list like I'd never seen before, and it had wines specifically from Washington that I had never heard of before. And I wanted money, and I knew that the way to do it was to go learn about this stuff. And so. Um, Woodenville is 20 minutes from Seattle and we had a lot of local winemakers from there that were on that list and so I just started going up to Woodenville every weekend and uh, sitting in people's tasting rooms and at that time you know there were maybe 20 to 25 operating wineries and tasting rooms in Woodenville I think today there's about 120 maybe a little bit more the district has blown up and grown obviously that's the home of Chateau St. Michel and, and Columbia um, but the people that I was hanging out with and spending time with were uh, 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 the folks at Mark Ryan and at um, Sparkman and Betts um, and, uh, you know, people that that I was fascinated by and who were available because they were running their own shoestring operations at that time. And so I peppered them with questions, bugged the shit out of them. Um, I think they asked me to leave more than once, which was okay, because then you just go to the next one down the road uh, in the warehouse district there. And uh, it just kept fascinating me and, and wanting to understand and watching, seeing people come in and spend time and buy wine and, and have this joy about them and this experience. And uh, I eventually, uh, about you know, eight months of being in Seattle and I was supposed to start law school and I just went, I don't want to be a lawyer. 
Uh, I don't want to do the work. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that it's for me. I can't imagine myself sitting in an office. So I completely abandoned it and, and stuck it out, stuck it out in the restaurant world, which is not a healthy world. <laughs> uh, we're seeing a lot, a lot of things currently, you know, in Portland um, through the 86 PDX list and a few other things coming around that, that are doing some exposing work. And that's been going on for a while about how to shift that culture, but it's not a healthy culture. Uh, full of, of drugs and drinking and, and lots of cash running around and, um, late nights, uh, and and I, I wasn't healthy doing it, but I was fascinated. I was fascinated by it. Uh, eventually, I had a friend who was a bartender at a different restaurant where I started working, and he said, hey, I'm going to take this wine class at South Seattle Community College. Like, what are you doing on Sundays? To which I was like, well, mostly I'm hungover. <laughs> so what else is going on? And he was like, just come, come do this thing with me. It'll be something fun to do together. And so I said, sure. So uh, that program was uh, the, uh, uh, oh shit, what is it called? Somali International Sommelier Guild, which I don't think exists anymore. Yeah, so Canadian, Canadian program started by folks from Great Britain, I think, uh, based in Canada. And um, it was falling apart in the last recession. And I think it has since gone, long gone since then. Uh, but they were, they were operating in, in Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, uh, I think in San Francisco, maybe somewhere down further south in Texas as well at that time. So I did, I did the level one class, barely passed out of that, uh, and did the level two class. I distinctly remember that the tasting part of that was uh, blind on Chardonnay and Gewürztraminer, and I couldn't tell them apart. And passing was 70, and I got 72, which I think was I think it's because I wrote my name like that that extra <laughs> whatever that is that comes from writing your name on something. I'm pretty sure that that's what it was, and that's when the recession really. So that would have been 2009, I was in that class, and the recession really started hitting Seattle, which was one of the, the last places that it, that it hit during that time. And the, there was one instructor, and she chose, her name's DJ Kearney, she's uh, based out of Vancouver, uh, BC. She was flying up and down the West Coast, and because of the recession, had to make a decision about where she was going to conduct the class, and she chose Portland instead of Seattle. And I sat there, and that was for the, the, the diploma level course, which I was available to take if I paid the money. And I went, if I don't, if I don't do this now, I don't think I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. So I, for eight months, I drove every single Sunday from Seattle to wow. Portland. So I would get off work. Uh, by that time, I was managing a restaurant, this great little uh, Italian neighborhood restaurant called Serafina in East Lake in Seattle. So. Uh, I would get done with work around 2 a.m. on Saturday, go to bed, wake up. Uh, I had a buddy of mine who was also there, so we would drive down from, from Seattle, do eight hours of class in Portland, and then drive back, and then I had to be back at work at, you know, for, for lunch the next morning, so you know, I'd get in it at 8 or 10 a.m. and did that for eight months going back and forth. Again, I had no idea why, but I, I knew that there was something in this world that kept drawing me back in. And a lot of it has ended up stemming from growing up in a religious family. Like, I, uh, I'm, uh, like I, I don't think that, West, that wine in the Western world as we know it today would, would exist without the church. 
and, it, and I think that's often something that gets overlooked, but if you, certainly there's a merchant class in Bordeaux that's doing really interesting things and, you know, between wars where they're, you know, the, the British are coming in and then they're exporting all of the Bordeaux up to Great Britain and the British are coming in down to Portugal and the port is going that direction as well. So it may not be a wholly true statement, but the instant you get into the interior of France and then you get down into Italy and you get into Spain, the, the church is driving all of it, all of it. You know, particularly when we think about Pinot Noir in Burgundy, there is no Burgundy without there being monks. For what, and you know, and granted, you know, they're theoretically celibate. We all know that's not true. Um, but they don't have kids necessarily. They they've got nothing but time on their hands except to, to pray and eat meals and, and commune. And so what do they do? Well, they start mapping and writing and identifying. And, and like, there's a whole fascinating history there uh, that really comes out of what the church is doing. And I found an affinity for, for that. Um, obviously, being a student of history, I mean, the shaping of the Western world has happened with wine. And uh, it's not always good. I mean, I kind of used to think, well, you know, every, every great thing that ever happened in the Western world, there was wine at the table. But every, every fucked up thing that happened in the Western world, there was wine at the table. And uh, to not remember that is to not remember the power that, yes, wine can have, but that booze also has. <laughs> you know, that, that wine, wine is not alcohol, but it includes alcohol. And alcohol is, uh, is also a place where we see incredible destruction. And so if we, you know, establishing that full picture and trying to understand it from that much more broader historical context, like it continues to have a, I feel a tension with it where it draws me in and it pushes me out and it asks for more and it, and it, and it gives less sometimes. And sometimes it's, it's expansive and sometimes it's, you know, in tiny little minuscule pieces. But there's, a, there's an engagement there that I feel as part of an intellectual endeavor, but also as an experiential uh, endeavor. And I think that that's the, the beauty of this thing that I just kept pursuing because I didn't know what it was going to bring. Um, I think you've interviewed Seth Morgan Long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seth was in my class uh, in that diploma program in Portland. Uh, I was terrified of him. <laughs> uh, that guy, like we would sit there and taste wines and I made, I made it through all the way through those first two levels of the uh, International Sommelier Guild Wine Fundamentals course in, in Seattle, never giving a tasting note. Everyone had to give one. I managed to not do it. Um, actually, uh, in Seattle, where I met my, my now ex-wife, the first time I heard her give a tasting note, I was like, I'm never speaking up in this thing. Like She was professionally trained professionally trained chef, like accomplished, um, her name, Julia Bandy. I don't know if you've talked to her. She's the, um, works at Soda Vineyards. And I mean, you, you should, you should talk to her. She, she changed. And I'm, I don't think I say this out of turn. She changed the way that hospitality operates in the Willamette Valley. And you should, you should talk to her about it because she's fascinating and brilliant and unlike anybody else that I've ever met who works, works in, in this business. Um, you know, so then I get to Portland and now I'm terrified by Seth because he's sitting there and identifying wines like, and I'm like, I thought it tasted like fruit. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but it's all of these fruits. And I, I just didn't have muscle memory for, for any of that. Um, and so I've, I've, I've operated from a place of silence a lot in this 
in this business because I'm like, I just didn't know, I didn't know what it was and I didn't know what it was for. And certainly from an organoleptic experience, it's not, I didn't, I didn't grow up, you know, eating a, div, a huge diverse diet. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was, is an amazing cook and, uh, but growing up in the Midwest, like your options of fresh things are limited. And I grew up in a farming community where you don't, like no one was growing food, everyone's growing row crops. Right, like, you're like, wait, so you're on a bunch of corn that I can't eat? Mm -hmm. So where does the corn go, you know? Like, and of course, the, you know, there's sweet corn and there's, you know, the farmer's garden kind of thing, but it's within a certain spectrum. So, but when I started tasting wine, I couldn't tell you the difference between lemons, limes, grapefruits, oranges, like that kind of like citrus realm, didn't have, didn't have a palate for it. Uh, I could do the intellectual side of it. I could study, I could write and do those pieces of it. But, but I, was, uh, I was just always struck by going like, okay, we can identify all these things. What am I missing? Mm -hmm. How do I figure that out? Um, there's a lot of going into grocery stores, which I don't recommend doing this during COVID, but picking up fruit and smelling it and putting it back <laughs> and just smelling and smelling and smelling and, 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 and like purchasing, you know, but I'd be like, oh, that's what, you know, that's what that is. Like, you know, cause I was getting, I don't know, tortilla chips and I didn't want any fresh fruit at the time. But, um, but it is that ongoing piece of, if you want to learn, if you want to learn the thing, you have to dive into it and dive into, into all of its parts. So. So being in Portland, finish, finishing the diploma course, and, and that is what ended up connecting me down into the Willamette Valley. So I, um, I was asked by uh, Seth's girlfriend at the time, Destiny Dudley. She was like, hey, I'm pouring wines for um, a Thanksgiving tasting at Shea Vineyard. Uh, we've got a spot. Do you wanna come down from Seattle and pour wines for this thing? And I went, I don't know what that means. <laughs> But sure, like I'll get out of town and, and come drive down. Uh, and that was where I met Drew Voigt. So that was uh, 2010. And I met Drew and we worked through the weekend, poured wines for uh, the Shea Thanksgiving open houses. I was out of my depth, had no idea what was going on. And I got done with that. And a few weeks later, I think I sent Drew an email and I said, hey, uh, I, could I come work Harvest, you know, in 2011? And he wrote me back and I, th I think it was one sentence. I'd have to go back and see if I can find the email, but I think it just said, I don't hire Psalms. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, yeah, nope, totally get it. Uh, I wouldn't hire me either if that was, if that was the only category that we were, that we're looking at. And through some conversation, I said, look, I, I, I think I understand what you're saying when you say that. Um, I'm not that, and I I know that I don't know anything. But yes, I have this basic this you know education that I've pursued, and I don't know where it's going. But I think I want to keep pursuing it. And I'd been during during getting the diploma and working in restaurants in Seattle. I had uh, volunteered for wineries in the Seattle area and had some really lovely people who, you know, I'd go help with crush and do whatever. And I had realized over time that there is within the Seattle metropolitan winemaking community is this incredible agricultural divorce. So we're just, I mean, and it starts with Chateau St. Michel. We grow it over there and we ship it over and we grow it over there and we ship it over. And I kept thinking to myself, wow, this is really cool. Like you can grow grapes anywhere and make wine everywhere, anywhere. And over time I just kind of went, yeah, but isn't there something foundational about being there that's being missed? You know, I get why we're here, like sales, marketing, this is, 
where the population is, this is where people live. I get that piece of it. Hmm. But oh, so we're just going to drive three hours. How, how many times? Like, really, how many times are we going to drive three hours, on, you know, minimum in order to get to the vineyards uh, that people are sourcing from? I remember, distinctly remember driving into the Willamette Valley in 2010 as I was driving into Shea and going, oh, shit. This is, this is like when I was in Switzerland. I've been driving up through this thing, like the people are here, the place is here, the work is here. You know, if you're standing in the winery at Shea, you've got 140 acres of vineyard land surrounding you. And it just really hit me hard that, like, I, I, I was like, I think I'm done. I think I'm done with restaurants and I need to, I need to figure out a way to do this. So, uh, eventually Drew said yes. <laughs> I don't know how much convincing it actually took. Probably a lot more than either of us want to talk about. Um, I was offered a job in Seattle to run what is today my favorite restaurant, probably in the Pacific Northwest, called Casina uh, Spinace. It's this Piemontese um, uh, restaurant with the most amazing pasta and wine list and they have a, a little bar next door called Artuzzi and they were getting ready they were gonna launch a restaurant group and I was gonna come on board as the GM and I was offered that job and after I was offered that job I went I said okay I'm gonna think about this and I had the, the 2011 harvest gig lined up with Drew at Shea and I had this job for this career that I had been building that I was really gonna get to launch and I was like okay in, in six months who am I going to be in six months? And I just remember going, if I'm still in a restaurant, I'm, I'm going to hate my life. Like, I need to be done with this thing. And uh, they were not happy with me <laughs> for this entire process. And then I just went, nah, I'm good. <laughs> like, uh, so, I, you know, at the age of 30, I cut my salary to nothing in order to come down to work the harvest in 2011 uh, and it it changed my entire life changed my entire life um, 11 as you are aware is the coldest vintage on record I spent most of that time uh, as a harvest intern for about the first month I, I cleaned and then I cleaned the same thing that I had cleaned with a week before uh, I went out and just walked around the property from the blocks that were coming into Shea Vineyard, just um, cutting out botrytis wherever we could see it. And we, we, there was a discussion with Dick and Deirdre, the owners, uh, about are we going to make 6,000 cases of sparkling wine or 6,000 cases of rosé? Um, and then it warmed up eventually uh, for, you know, barely in the middle of October. And we started picking, I think it was, it was October 30th and uh, picked out, I think the entire vineyard got picked out by November 2nd. And we just stood on the crush pad for hours and hours and hours. I refused to wear pants. I just wore shorts the entire time. I was freezing. I had the wrong boots. My feet were soaked. It was cold. And I, I, just, I just fell in love. I just absolutely fell in love. And there was a, there was a resonance there that I, I think that I hadn't under, understood previously where when I was working in restaurants, I was trying to quit my job every three months. 
like I kept cycling through, like it would hit three months and I'd be like, I gotta go somewhere else. And like, it was, I was just, you know, I'd just go look at another restaurant or whatever the case may be. And it was through the process of harvest that I went, oh, this, this thing changes every three months. Mm -hmm. Like this is a very human cycle that's going on here. And it's a cycle that I feel. And so then it was, well, why, why do I feel this cycle? And my mom's family has owned the same plot of land for 170 years in Southern Illinois. My dad's family um, was one of the largest landholders in Middle Tennessee for hundreds of years. Like agriculture sits deep in my world that I just didn't have a place for it and didn't have an aptitude for understanding it and didn't know what to do with it if I had. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden it's like, oh, like this genetic memory just kind of comes pushing through and I found, I found my thing. So maybe it couldn't have been anything, <laughs> but it was definitely, it was definitely this thing, mm -hmm. which then has built on all of the other pieces that I was un unwittingly doing by working in restaurants, by teaching high school, by living on a beach in California, by studying esoteric branches of philosophy in, in Europe, you know, like all of the things have, have really fit into what the wine industry does because the wine industry, it, it, is a, it takes a liberal arts education for a small producer to understand how to do all of it. You have to, you have to be entertaining. You have to work in hospitality. Um, you've got to understand psychology. You have to understand economics. You need to understand chemistry. Uh, you, biology is a great thing to have. You better understand um, uh, geology, mm -hmm. right? Like you can just go into that multiverse and all of a sudden go, maybe, maybe the wine industry, if you want to be a, you know, a small producer and not, you know, and just carve out your own little niche, maybe just getting a liberal arts education is the best thing that you can possibly do. Um, so, so I worked at Harvest in 2011 with Drew. I uh, went back to Seattle for a little bit. Um, he hooked me up with uh, someone that he had worked with when he was at Domain Serene, who had just taken over winemaking for his family's property outside of Melbourne in Australia. So I went down to Victoria and spent um, four four months in the Macedon Ranges on the coldest vineyard in continental Australia, uh, making, uh, making sparkling base and uh, trying to make Pinot Noir uh, at a place called Hanging Rock Winery. Uh, came back from there uh, was helping to build some luxury luxury uh, wine tourism with a company called Evergreen Escapes up in Seattle and in the Willamette Valley. And during that summer and coming back, I you know I'd worked this vintage with Drew. I'd worked in Australia both for for male winemakers, and I just had this thing in my brain. I was like, I want to I want to work for a woman. I didn't know I didn't know why. I just thought I like I know these experiences are going to be different, and I think there's going to be a different value set that comes along along with that. Some of that is that generally the 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 best friends that I have in my life are are female, and so I think that I also felt that like like I I have a uh, I don't know a, getting along with women I find easier than men a lot of the time, probably because I talk too much, as you can see. Um, like the verbal piece of life is is really great stereotypically uh, in the in the uh, female side of the world on that gender separation. Um, but I thought that I would learn something different. I think that I, I thought that I would see an approach different. So I applied to two places for 2012, and it was to Archery Summit and um, uh, and to Antiquaterra. Um, 
as I have gotten to know Maggie uh, from Antiquitarian in later years, I know, I know why she never responded to my email. It's because she's really bad at it. <laughs> but she, uh, it would have been lovely to work for her, but instead uh, I ended up at Archery Summit in 2012, which was Anna Matzinger's last vintage there, which none of us knew at the time. Um, uh, Kate Payne Brown was the assistant winemaker and Lee Bartholomew was the vineyard manager and co-general manager along with Anna. And it was an absolutely extraordinary harvest. Uh, I've actually gotten to, you know, between that harvest and the one previously at Shea, the, the rest of the harvest intern team at Shea was, it was myself, uh, Leah Jorgensen, uh, Leah Jorgensen Sellers, and Ashley Campion, who grew up in the Willamette Valley and is the associate winemaker at Limelson. Mm -hmm. Uh, the 2012 vintage at Archery Summit was with um, now M uh, Morgan Beck, who's the winemaker at Johan, uh, Merritt Kane, who he and his wife Camille own property right across from Eminent Domain up on Ribbon Ridge, and then this goofy Australian guy named Christian Bradshaw who works in the Yar Valley today. And so I've been fortunate to be on intern crews of people who were pursuing careers. Maybe they didn't always know it at the time, um, but it's been it's been a very serious was a serious group of people every time. Like people really cared about the work, uh, and and were interested in doing it for the place where they were. There wasn't there wasn't goofing off. Um, you know, there was certainly joy and enjoyment of the work, but it was we took it really really seriously. Um, so the, the that vintage at Archery Summit was was a foundational uh, my. Uh, uh, Julie and I had started dating the year previous and she came down and worked 2012 at um, at Shea and uh, after that vintage we decided that we were going to stay in the Willamette Valley and uh, by I don't know you know there's no there's no jobs when you when you are in the Willamette Valley post harvest everyone is looking for a job and there is nothing to be found and it's really frustrating for a lot of people and we we were those people I mean for she and I neither one of us had been without a job since we were basically 10 years old to all of a sudden be unemployed to have no prospects to be going okay do we go you know she was a restaurant person as well do we go back to portland and where we know we can get a restaurant job or or do we stay here in this community and our decision to stay in the community was going look like like this is where things are happening if we if we go to portland we might lose it mm -hmm. like let's stay here and do it uh she worked at this horrible restaurant that no longer exists that was in Dundee. Um, I worked at Walnut City Kitchen, uh, found a restaurant gig and put together a pro wine program there. That restaurant no longer exists. It was owned by uh, Scott Cunningham who owns Community Plate. And we came into spring. Um, Jules ended up getting a job at Soder. Um, I ended up getting a job working for Drew Voigt for his own project and we set off uh, into, into our career paths. And uh, there's, no, there's no good reason for it to happen <laughs> other than being there at the right time, showing some kind of competency for the work. And, but being in the community meant that we had that information and we were readily able to take advantage of opportunities that came around. And I've counseled people for years now who, you know, who are in that same position post-harvest, who they're like, yeah, I'm just gonna move to Portland. And I just go, okay, do you, do you wanna work in the wine? Like, of course the urban wine scene in Portland has grown a lot and there's, there is opportunity there, but like, there's not as much as there is if you stay down the valley. And even though what McMinnville is 35 miles from Portland, sometimes it's two and a half hours. And 
I all my my heart goes out to people who may have decided to live in Portland and make that drive all the time, and I get it. But oh, holy shit, like that it, it's it is a challenging thing to do that. Like getting into the community, um, having experiences, meeting new people, all facilitated the way that we were able to move um, occupationally. Um, so so I started working for Drew. <laughs> so it was he and I. Uh, I, I mean, you, if you, you come out of harvest and you think, I know something about wine, and then you get through the rest of the, the production year and you go, I was wrong. I know nothing about this. And uh, certainly while getting sommelier certification and passing the diploma level for the International Sommelier Guild and working in restaurants and selling wine and buying wine certainly opens up the world of wine, it tells you nothing about making wine. Absolutely nothing. And it was really a, a career reset for me to do that and then to go into, into the cellar. Um, and I mean, Drew, Drew is an amazing human being in this world. Um, I don't know why he, he I, I know that he, you know, when he was going in college, he tutored um, when he was in college and he tutored, tutored Spanish, you know. Um, when he was in California and uh, going to Davis and um, it really shows because what I wanted out of coming into a full-time job was to have a a craft oriented occupation so I wanted to learn on the job and I needed to work for someone who was willing to teach and it just so happens that if I sat down with Drew and I said okay explain reduction to me again like he didn't go, this is the 10th time. <laughs> why doesn't, like, why doesn't this, like, why can't you get this? He would go, yeah. And so we crack open Rainier's um, and, and we sit and for, you know, two, three hours, it's just him talking about reduction and me taking notes. Um, um, talking about soul for use, me taking notes. Uh, talking about what he understood as um, how, how to be in a vineyard, how to teach um, how to work, what are you looking for for winemaking, how to look at a vineyard, how to walk through it. Let's, let's go out to the vineyard and let's go do this. And, and I got paid for that job because what I brought was uh, a, a background working in restaurants and having an aptitude for, you know, for someone who, you know, Drew never worked in a restaurant and he couldn't really on some level as like technically read a wine list, mm -hmm. you know? Um, winemakers are horrible at that shit. They just go, well, I made it, don't you want it? <laughs> And the reality is that no, because you know who else made it, uh, especially if we're talking about Willamette Valley B Pinot Noir, uh, 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 at last count about 987 other people holding licenses in this valley uh, made, well I should say in Oregon, uh, made, made wine too. And it's the same grape variety and it's the same price, but like, like give me a fucking break, you know. So, so being able to bring, bring a benefit uh, to a company and then be educated uh, was really what what I found and I, I feel like on some level I probably didn't get a master's degree even though I was getting master's degree level education I kind of you know had to go what is pH again and like think back to when I got a D minus in AP chemistry and go I think I slept I'm pretty sure I slept through that part like <laughs> that wasn't 
When is this ever going to be necessary again? Yeah, like like it's it's called pho. Mm, I think that's a soup from Vietnam. Uh, like I like I like that part. Uh, that's delicious. But I don't know about this other stuff. Um, but but I found that the more that I did it, and um, I, like his patience was just absolutely incredible. Not with just with me, but with other people. I mean, we were in Beacon Hill, in that winery, and Isold Smith was there. Leah Jorgensen had brought her project in. Um, Wild Earth Sellers was in there at the time. Um, you know, Drew was building his client base which today is, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. The amount of brands that that man has launched with the kind of quality that he does, it is out of a perspective and that it, there's no question about that. But that guy makes quality wine and gives people the breadth to, to ex, uh, excel when they enter into this business that they couldn't find otherwise. I mean, it's absolutely, his work is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I didn't always agree with it. Like, like uh, I came to find out that the way that he makes picking decisions, like I, I, I didn't think that that was the way that I wanted to make picking decisions. But you don't know that un until you spend a lot of time being really quiet and asking and asking and asking and asking and asking and having the willingness of someone to keep, you know, to keep explaining it. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of the funniest things, uh, so I started, I started with Drew in the spring of 2013 and I basically said, look, like, I, I can see what you can afford to pay. I understand, like, it's an entry-level job. Um, can we, like, look at six months and have a bump, you know, a bump in salary, potentially, if, if we can prove the, the sales side of this thing? Can we have that? And he was like, sure, like, let's talk about it then. Um, if I'm remembering this correctly, it came time, and he was just like, look, like, it's just not, it's not in the cards right now. And I was like, no worries, man. And uh, maybe a couple weeks later, he came to me and he was like, hey, I was on the website the other day. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, uh, did you promote yourself? <laughs> and I went, well, you didn't have the money. So I just made myself assistant winemaker and I was doing all of the web copy at the time. So I just changed my, I just changed my title, uh, which is that sometimes you you get ahead the ways that you can uh, that you can get ahead and he was he just kind of went all right well you, you better fucking earn it and i was like okay like all uh, you can't pay i'm gonna take this and and then i'm gonna earn it and um i i hope i hope that i did uh i, I think that i did we made great strides um, in that company um, brought on clients did really fascinating work um, all the way from uh, working with people down in Sonoma and Napa to um, really putting eminent domain into the frame that it now exists uh, today, which was amazing. Um, Cremoisie came on board. Um, we, we courted them and got them as a client to start, which was fantastic. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a really extraordinary uh, few years of life uh, being, being in that place. He's a, he's a, he's an, I have a lot of affection for him. He's an amazing guy, um, which is actually leads into Antiquum. Uh, uh, Stephen, I met uh, Stephen Hagen, the owner of Antiquum. I met in the, the uh, harvest of 2011. He's one of the first people I met in the Willamette Valley because Drew was buying fruit from him, and Stephen came to drop it off. And you know, in this this season of 2011, where I mean, some people lost 50 or 60 percent of their crop, and uh, Steven showed up, he, first he, he came up in his, in his flatbed and I was unloading the fruit 
or actually at first I, uh, I went and looked at it and I said, hey, and I went into Drew who was in the office and I said, hey, um, some guy's trying to drop off fruit and he says it's Pinot Noir and it doesn't look like Pinot Noir. Granted, my frame of reference for Pinot Noir was only Shea at that point, but like Shea has this really like dark purple, almost black kind of color to it. And Stephen is dropping off these berries that are, you know, tiny. They're all homogenous and they're blue as blueberries. Like I was like, this is bullshit. Like, I don't know what this is. And Drew was like, no, 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 it's totally fine. Like that's just like, that's just the way that it looks. And I was like, okay. Uh, and so we go off, we unload the fruit and, and Stephen is apologetic to a T saying, I just like, I'm really sorry, like the rot got away from me. I like, we, we can talk about price later, but like, I just need you to know, like this is not up to my standard. And I'm like, I'm really, really sorry. And, and we were like, cool, no worries, man. And we unloaded it. We were processing some other fruit um, from Shea and, uh, and Steven took off. And a few hours later, we start putting the Inticuum farm fruit onto the processing, onto the um, sorting table. And we're just all standing there, just watching it go by because there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, we had been, you know, we're, we had been clipping out rot, you know, clipping into the middle of clusters, looking for botrytis because sometimes you get botrytis that is interior and you can't see it, um, that is developed early before bunch closures, closure. Um, I mean, we had been scouring looking for botrytis with, with the, the shea fruit. And we were started doing the same thing with Inticuum and there was just nothing there. I mean, I think probably there was maybe 1%, maybe 1%. And I knew at that point, I was like, that's a guy that I would like to work with. Like someone who is that serious, mm -hmm. like that's something different. That's really something different. And so that first vintage of getting to see Inticuum farm fruit, um, uh, old school vineyards at the time was an introduction into something that I, you know, there's no way I could have known what it ended up as. And then, you know, so Inticuum um, was, was ended up becoming Drew's client, first client in 2012. And I got to work on the winemaking side for the wines, you know, from uh, 11 and then again, starting again and, and, you know, finishing up the 12s with Drew and then 13 um, through the 14 vintage. And so uh, it was, it was always there. I mean, we discovered new things. We, we started making our Rosa Pinot Gris during that time. We identified Passiflora during that time and Luxuria, um, these wines that have become really critical to this. And I got to be part of that entire piece of the growth uh, of what Inticuum would look like. So meeting, meeting, you know, it's one of those things that I think kind of, kind of rule number one for me in the, in this business. And I think it is in life as well as don't be an asshole. Uh, and it's a, seems really crass, but it's also very simple that you never know what's going to happen. And, and it's not in this sort of, I don't know, gauche, like, like you only get to make a first impression once kind of bullshit. It's, it's like, who are, who are you? Because if, you, if you're just trying to make a first impression that like, you're probably going to fucking lie because you're so concerned with the image. But if, if we're real and authentic and we come into the space ourselves and we take what people give us and we, we're, we, you know, there's reciprocity in that, you never know what's going to turn up down the road. And, you know, it gets said all the time that the wine business is a business of relationships. I have seen that through and through and it is not a casual like, like, oh, you like me and I like you kind of thing. Like it's, it's deep, mm -hmm. especially in times of recession, economic recession and times like COVID where you're scraping to find someone to buy your product. If you, if you do not have good relationships and you have not cultivated those over the years and you're a tiny Oregon producer doing no more than 5,000 cases, you're, you're fucked. You're fucked. Hmm. Um, 
there is there is vitality in that and <laughs> the baseline of not being an asshole as much as possible um which I'll, I, by the way, I don't succeed at all the time. Just, just so we're clear, I, I don't always live by my own rules. Um, there, there are extraordinary things that come, that come out of it, um, and really, and really, special, really special things. Uh, you know, it probably sustained when, when you know, Stephen and I sat down for a beer in the spring of 2018, just to catch up. Um, and he said he was, you know, expressing some frustration within a in the custom crush situation. He was still with Drew at the time, and people get frustrated. Like custom crush is is a challenging challenging environment for everybody. Um, it's really useful, but but it has challenges. And Stephen had been client one, and now there were sixteen clients ish. Um, and he was feeling that, and he he wanted he wanted something different, and he had always felt like I was for him that I had identified things in this property and in this place that really resonated with him and and had thought that he would come to me and we we sit there talking about this thing and at the time I I had taken some time off from from work and um you know he he comes to me and he's telling me these things and I'm like dude you know I don't have a job right now right like I'm not working you know if this is something you're interested in I'm interested in it too but we also need to talk about this the relationship piece of it because you're leaving the person who built this thing for you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm i'm potentially taking it from my mentor like this is going to be rough and i think that if you know if we all had not had good relationships it was and it was a struggle for months it was a struggle um when when that came on i didn't i didn't speak with drew for a long time uh, i understood why I, I, I really had hoped that we would come back around from it, and we have, which is great. Um, but you could otherwise just write somebody off and be like, oh, you're screwing my life up. And there's something more foundational to it when, if we engage in relationships that way. I think that's really, really critical. And, and wine is, it's an amazing avenue. It's an amazing avenue for it. Um, that's for sure. So, you know, I spent, I ended up leaving Harper Voigt in the uh, spring of 2015. Um, I was looking for more growth and it just wasn't available within Drew's operation. Um, I know that was disappointing for him. It was actually disappointing for me too. Like I wanted to, I wanted to, I felt like we were doing some really interesting things and I wanted to continue that growth. Um, but it wasn't for, for where I wanted my life to go. Um, the, the compensation wasn't, it just wasn't available. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm not money grubbing, but um, I like money and what it does, because it buys more wine to facil- facilitate more, more, facilitates more community, uh, <laughs> which is nice. Um, but like, I, I was watching, uh, Jules and I were still married at the time, and I was watching her career do this at Soder. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I want, like, I want my career to do that too, but it's got to be on my own path. So, um, Adam, Adam Smith from Isold Smith had been, he had la- helped launch Nicholas J and I knew that he was moving out of that project and they were going to be looking for another, uh, a winemaker. And so I kind of had peppered them and, um, kind of weaseled my way into an interview cause I had gotten to know, um, Jay a little bit more than Jean Nicola, um, when they were around Adam. And, um, that was a, that was a really good, like going into a first interview for that like next job kind of thing <laughs> where uh 
I sometimes I just wish I should have shut my mouth. There's probably this interview is going to be a lot of me going back and going. I really should have shut my mouth about that. Um, but I, I sat there at, uh, you know, the work was being done at Adelsheim at the time, and I sat in Adels at Adelsheim in a trailer, uh, a, a single-wide trailer they were using for an office with Jean-Nicola and, and, um, and Jay, and we were talking about Bishop Creek Vineyard, which um, is still mostly own-rooted, um, you know, an older vineyard uh, around, and uh, one of the questions that was asked was, like, you know, do you think it's important to protect own-rooted vines? And my response was to look at Jean-Nicola and say, um, hey, Jean-Nicola, how many own rooted vines are in Burgundy? And he, he kind of was like, none. And I went, yeah, so I think it's pretty fucking important that we protect them. <laughs> I, I think that's when I didn't get that job. I think, I think that is the exact moment uh, that they realized that I was not the fit, that there might be a little bit uh, too much contention, and I don't know that my humor works in Burgundy. <laughs> uh, I don't purse my lips enough, and I don't go, ah, you know, enough. Uh, but it was it was a really great interview process to go into, and and to know that, like, Jean Nicolas is, is one of the greatest winemakers in the world. Like the place of of that feeling of confirmation that like oh like they. Like, I wouldn't get an interview if it wasn't a possibility. Like, they're not doing this because we're, like, we're friends. Like, we're not that, we're not good enough friends to have a friend interview. Mm -hmm. um, I am incredibly grateful that Tracy Kendall got that job. She is, she is the right person for it. She is way better at her work <laughs> than I am at mine. Um, she's exacting and precise and has an analogous background. And she's, she's absolutely brilliant. And it's the, it, it obviously it has proven itself to be the right thing um, for them. Um, but I was grateful to have that because what it led into was uh, eventually um, me moving on to join the team at Soder uh, later that year. So uh, when when Jules had started at Soder in 2013, I would go up and like just sit there because she was working weekends. I was working five days during the week. She worked over the weekends. And if I didn't go up to Soder and just kind of hang out, I, never, I didn't get to see her on the weekends. So I'd go up, have a, take a book, have a glass of bubbles because there's nothing better than Soder Brut Rosé, um, especially when it's free. Uh, thanks to Tony <laughs> for that. Uh, and so eventually she just went, you know, if you're going to be up here, why don't you just host tastings? <laughs> like, you know, you know, everything you're already talking to wine club members, like just can you, can you like help this? Cause Soder was starting to grow mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit at that time. And so I said, sure. Um, so I started hosting tasting. So I was, you know, in the summers, I would just work seven days a week, work five, five for Harper Voigt, work two on the weekends. And uh, it was really an amazing, an amazing time for a couple of years doing that. And through that process, I got to know Tony and James and um, really felt a connection with Tony. And he and I would get together for lunch uh, every every few months, mostly at the Dundee Bistro, I would always say I'll pay next time, and I never did. Uh, but we would, you know, we'd open two or three bottles of wine and um, just enjoy them and talk about them and have lunch, and we'd spend two to two and a half hours just kind of talking. And so Soder had posted a, a position for uh, an assistant winemaker, and uh, Tony and I were having lunch. I was in this process. I the 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 job with a. Uh, um, uh, with Nicholas J was not going to happen, and so I was back at Harper Void and still going. Okay, I'm here, but I like I'm still feeling this pull, and so I 
we got together for lunch. I knew that the job was out there and we got, we got to the end of lunch and I think to the bottom of a couple bottles and like, it was like time to leave. And, uh, I don't know if I said, or if Tony said it, but it was said like, so do we talk about the job? And we said, sure, let's talk about the job. And Tony just looked at me and he was like, I'm not hiring you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay well, this was great. <laughs> like, uh, and he said, look, I think what you're doing is way more interesting. Um, you're more creative where you are right now. There's life in what you're doing. Like we're really hiring for a seller person. Like that's, that's what we're doing. Um, and I said, like, fair enough. Like, I, I mean, I actually appreciate that. And Tony is a, he is a, he shoots straighter, more painfully straight than anybody that I've met uh, in this business. Um, and I said, okay, it's like, here's the deal. If you're going, if you're going through this process and my name comes back for some reason, just let me know. Like, let's just, let's just talk about it. He said, okay. So, uh, three months later, I was actually, I'd taken on, um, some barrel sales work for a cooperage called Hermitage. And, uh, I was uh, actually headed up to Archery Summit to make a call. I'd pulled into the parking lot and I get a call from, from James Cahill and he's like, Hey, what's going on? And I was like, nothing. And he was like, do you have a few minutes to come over and talk? And I was like, like now? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, no, <laughs> like not, not right now. Uh, and he said, well, what about, you know, a couple days? And I said, sure. And, uh, I was pretty sure what it was about, but I, I, went over and we sat outside at the office uh, at Soder and just started talking about the job and what it would entail. And um, part of what Soder was recognizing at the time is that with the constricting marketplace that people wanted to see out in the market, in the national marketplace wanted to see principles. Mm -hmm. And that meant owners and winemakers. James was already doing a lot of that national sales work. Uh, there was a national sales associate, Michelle Cove, who was running around the country. She'd lived in, managing California, but also managing half the country as well. Um, and then another guy named Brian Seifer, who was on board, um, who would eventually become the GM of Soder and a partner in North Valley before that dissolved. Um, and so I'm sitting there and they're, I mean, they're, they're months into the candidate pool and there's all of these candidates for an assistant winemaking job. And then there's me and no one else had sales capacity, background, anything, and I did. And I think that that's probably what ended up setting it apart. And uh, the the job was offered as an associate winemaker position, um, which was <laughs> terrifying, <laughs> terrifying, Ter like way out of my depth. Like I did not have the education. I did not know. I didn't think that it, I didn't think that I knew how to make wine well enough to take that position, and it's basically the same way I played competitive sports, you know, growing up and going into college. Is that I always wanted to play on a team where I was the worst one because I knew that I was going to get better. Uh, and luckily, in competitive sports, I was big enough that like that was okay. <laughs> but it was uh, it was daunting, and I was scared shitless, absolutely scared. Um, so that would have been June of 2015. Um, I spent a month, spent that month um, finishing at, at, with Drew at, with the Harper Voigt project and all of his consulting clients in the Custom Crush. And at the same time I was working at Soder. And the first thing that they asked me to do uh, was to go into the cellar and um, we were bottling Planet Oregon Pinot Noir. 
It was a 8,400 case run. The largest bottling run that I had done at that point was 600 cases. <laughs> uh, and I had no idea, I had no idea what to do. Luckily the wine was all blended and put together and it was just managing the bottling part. And then after that came North Valley. And so they were sending me into the cellar and going, okay, pull all the samples that we need for North Valley. Here's a spreadsheet, here's, here's what we want. And I was like, cool, great. How do you want the samples pulled? And they were like, here's the spreadsheet. And I was like, yeah, like, but how do I organize it? And they were like, here's the spreadsheet. <laughs> and I just went, okay. We're gonna, we will see how this goes. And it was, it was trial by fire. And, and I think that that is, I mean, it's a very, it's an older way of doing things for sure. Uh, I don't mean to call Tony old, but he's getting old. Um, and, and there's a method to that, like that, like, like we, hi we hired you because we believe in you, show us the capacity to figure it out. And so I, I just went and, and figured it out. Um, it turned out good. <laughs> the, one, the, one, the wine worked. Uh, that North Valley Pinot Noir from, that uh, would have been the 2014 we were putting together. It was, it was a fantastic, fantastic uh, Pinot Noir, um, which led into the harvest of 2015 when they said to me, hey, um, we're going to make the majority of Planet Oregon and a healthy portion of North Valley at a facility that's not near here. It's in Corvallis. And I went, uh-huh. And they're like, and we want you to go run that. Uh, so there's a facility in Corvallis that used to be called Belleville Cellars. Um, it, it went out in the recession, you know, uh, 2009, I think was its last vintage. Joe Wright was the winemaker partner there who then eventually is at Left Coast mm -hmm. um, and running that now and doing, doing great work there. Um, but it basically had been a place to stick bulk wine. Uh, Eugene Sellers was sticking bulk wine there. I think for some California producers, they were sticking bulk wine there. Um, Bill Kramer, who's been around forever, doing work at Benton Lane. He also makes wine over here at Pfeiffer still today, had been at King Estate. He was sort of helping the owner, Steve, manage, you know, um, some of the, the, you know, the process that was going on. And we came in in 2015. Um, Soder had, had trialed it, done about 20 tons there, 20 tons of Pinot Noir in 2014. And in 2015, they just went, here you go, have the whole thing. Um, the maximum amount of tonnage I think we did at Harper Voigt was about 125 tons. We did 286 tons through a 150 ton facility uh, in 2015. And we were still, we had to go get, that, that crop that year was enormous. We had to go get another facility for 100 tons over what we thought the estimate was going to be. Simply just by, just by math. Like, and it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like this huge, difference you know you look at multipliers as you're getting into lag phase in the vineyard and you look at historical averages and you kind of go like oh here's how much crop we think we're gonna have by the way crop estimation is a bullshit art like like it's really it's really bad and but when you start doing it at scale it gets worse so if you're at if you're at one acre and you're looking at a crop estimate where you know say that your your multiplier for that season instead of being you know instead of being historically like 1.9 it's 2.1 that's not that's not an issue from you know uh, you know, three tons to 3.2 tons or whatever that equals out to be. Um, if you do that across 60 acres or 100 acres, uh, it becomes a real, real interesting, uh, really interesting experience. Um, so that was, that was uh, an enormous amount of trust. Those guys, you know, Tony is working up at, uh, up at MSR, up in Carlton. That's where James is mostly. Chris, who was the state winemaker and still is at Soder, is up there as well. I'm down here. 
with an intern team. We're all living in the same apartment. Um, we were working, I mean, I think we did, and maybe I shouldn't say this because of OSHA. Let's, let's see. <laughs> we worked a lot of hours. Uh, now there are regulations. You can't work more than a certain amount of hours without waivers and all this kind of stuff. We were, we were pushing 112 hours a week um, just trying to get these things done. And, we, and in the particular way of making wine that is the demand of soda is that everything gets treated as though it's going to be a $100 bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's Planet Oregon or, or if it's the MS wine that is now $100, $110. It's all the same stuff. Um, it goes through the same process, and it's why Planet Oregon as a Pinot Noir is so damn good every, every year is because there's nothing where it could be in a more manufactured large winery environment. It is treated still as a small... 5,000 case winery, you know, putting out a 20,000 case um, label, which we all know 20,000 cases is nothing. <laughs> That's still nothing uh, in the world of wine. Mm -hmm. um, but to do it in the methodology where every single, you know, fermentation gets its own fair shake, everything, you know, gets its own space, everything is done essentially in, you know, one and a half to six ton fermenters that are all open top, like there's no closed tanks doing 20 tons and like getting it done in six days, everything goes into extended maceration, like everything is pressed to taste, like all of the kind of work that goes into a small winery environment, and it didn't, it didn't matter. Um, you know, Tony, Tony is, a, is an interesting character, uh, he's, he's reticent to talk about his history, um, which is interesting because it's like he's been a foundational player in American wine. Like there wasn't an acreage contract in the U.S. before Tony and Lee Hudson got together because Tony was, and Lee wasn't farming poorly, but like he was, he was tired of not being able to call the shots. And so he was like, look, I'll pay you the acreage price but I get to call the shots. I get to call all my pick dates. I get to look at, you know, all the crop yield. Like that didn't exist before, before Tony did that. Uh, he's done technological things with wiring equipment that didn't exist um, before he did it. And I, I think that it's a little abhorrent that in Oregon, he doesn't get his fair shake. Uh, you go down to California, whew, like he's, he, is, he is a deity <laughs> to this day in California. Um, and he never behaves like it. I think it's probably part of the reason that he left Napa is that he, he, he knows that that's not him. I mean, that's, you know, he was called a winemaking genius by Robert Parker. Um, and I, I mean this with all of the affection for him and my time with him. He's not a winemaking genius. He works harder than anybody else I've met, ever met. I mean, at, we, were, we would run night picks. So I would get to the vineyard at 11 p.m. We're picking through the night probably around 12.30 a.m., Tony shows up with his dog, Buster, and he, he parks his car and comes and checks, and I'm like, why, why are you even here? Like, like I, you know, one, I got this, like, we're cool. Uh, and then I realized that, like, that's just how it's done. And so he'd be, he would just go, cool, I'm gonna go sleep in my car. And so he goes <laughs> and he just sleeps in his car for a couple hours and he sets an alarm and he wakes up and he comes back out and he's like, hey, how's everything going? How, how's the pick looking? We walk through a couple rows together and he goes back and he goes in his car and he goes to sleep. Sunrise comes up and he gets up again. Like I, I, was, I was just blown away by that. Um, we were tasting, I think it was from the 2016 vintage. 
you know, the way that the way that we would sample, especially for North Valley, because it's being pulled from so many different vineyard sites in order to really look at these AVA blends for Pinot Noir and then for regional, more broadly regional blends for the Willamette Valley, we, we would have 80, 100 sample bottles, you know, sitting around the lab. And so we go through, you know, and you use graduated cylinders and we put these blends together and we'd sit them down as we, you know, as we eventually got through the process and look at those blends. And I remember we were, we were probably two weeks, eh, maybe it wasn't that close, maybe a month from bottling. And we'd, we'd gone through this process every month and we had the wines. And we're sitting there, and this is like the last check before we start racking everything. And we got to one of them and Tony was like, what, what's in this? And we were like, yeah, it's X, Y, and D. He was spreadsheet he was like, something's wrong with this. And it, and it has 20 components to it. And we're like, we, dude, we approved this. <laughs> like this was, you know, this was like weeks ago that we all agreed that this is the thing that we're going to do. And he's just like, no, it's not right. It's absolutely not right. And he, he goes back into the lab where all of the sample bo bottles are sitting and he just starts tasting through them and he finds one. And we're talking like, it might be a 2% contribution to the blend and he finds it and he's like, this is a problem, figure it out. I want another blend on my desk, you know, in a few hours. Which, which then means like you can't just, you can't just pull that piece out mm -hmm. because you pull that piece out and it affects something that's already in the blend itself. So now you have to go in and you've got to restructure everything related to that blend because that wine has to go somewhere. And you've got 10,000 cases within the North Valley context in order to fit that thing because it can't, it can't go into Mineral Springs Ranch anything because that's 100% estate. Mm -hmm. And so you're just sitting there going, <laughs> what the, like, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. That's like, that's the work. Mm -hmm. So may, I don't know, maybe, maybe, that is, maybe that is the genius. <laughs> maybe it is. Um, but I, I walked, I came away from my time at Soder it, I think continually inspired, and with James Cahill as well, that we go into things because they're supposed to be done right. They're not going to be perfect. We're chasing perfection. Um, I'd like to think of it as, as approaching and never attaining, which I, I think for some people can be really frustrating. Um, but when, when you feel the obligation to do that, uh, especially when, from my perspective at that time, the obligation is on someone else's behalf who's been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> and if I fuck it up, my name's not on the bottle. Like, no one, no one knows that I worked there, mm -hmm. right? Like, like, I'm this background monkey, you know, running around and climbing on barrels and, you know, trying to do the best work that I can. But, like, that's someone else's name. Um, that's, that's, that's real. And so, if we're going to go into it, we have to get it done right. Mm -hmm. We have to get it done right. Mm -hmm. um, and that has range to it. You know, it's not, it's not absolute. Um, and it's not necessarily moralistic. And I think right, right and wrong, we think in those terms a lot of time is that binary. Um, but there's, there's something about just getting it done and getting it done until it's done. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not healthy. <laughs> uh, one, of my, one of my favorite uh, Drew Voidisms is ob the obsessively crafted wine things, and he cracks the joke about how that's not a compliment. <laughs> uh, and I, I think I learned it. I learned it by watching you, Dad. You know, like, uh, like that's, that's that, that space that um, I continue to occupy in, in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, we, we get it done mm -hmm. and we get it done right. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Okay, I've been talking for a long time. There's got to be a question in there, in there somewhere rather, rather, yeah. than a, rather than a monologue. Are you making me do work now? I don't know. I don't know. How are we doing? Uh, okay, good. Give me, give me a tap on his five. Um, okay. Are we, are we going to run out of battery before we? We might. Get we're we're three down. We got one to go. Oh so. shit! <laughs> Sorry we'll about keep, that. We'll just keep rolling the audio. It's all good. Okay. So tell me about. You you mentioned okay. You kind of talked earlier about about coming to Antiquan about about the difficulty there about about coming here and, and kind of usurping your, your mentor and yeah and, and the relationships that you had to deal with. So tell me about that decision and that process. Um, it's not easy, and, and and to be frank, because because I really value the relationships. I mean, this was this was one of those things where I I couldn't tell Drew because it wasn't my business. Like, and I don't mean I don't mean it's not my business. I mean like Antiquum Farm is not my business. So Stephen has to tell Drew that he's no longer going to be part of the portfolio, mm -hmm. and he's the one who has to tell him that. I'm taking over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the day that Stephen was going to tell Drew, I had, Drew and I had scheduled to have beers together, as we normally would, but I knew it was going to be a different conversation because I wanted to follow up immediately with that meeting and sit down and talk with him about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Drew canceled our beers together, which is the only time that he has ever canceled beers together. And it, it fucking broke my heart. Like, um, it, because, but I also knew that he was really hurt. Like that guy loves what he does and he takes it very seriously and he loves Steven. Um, and I, I knew that there was immediately fear like, oh shit, I'm going to lose Antiquum Farm. Like, and not, not, not as just a client, but like now he's going to lose it as, mm -hmm. a, as a, as a vineyard. And like, this is incredibly important to Drew. Like it, it sets him in a different tone of his own work. And I, it was like, it was, it was hard. It was just really hard. Um, you know, cause then, then I also have to work with Drew because the wines, the, the 2017 Pinot Noirs are at Bjornsson where he's making wine. So now he's in a consulting role for me as the person who's taking over. Um, there was a point in that process where, um, so all the whites had been bottled, the, all the Pinot Gris, so it's just the Pinot Noir sitting there. And we're going and doing blending trials, and he puts everything together, and I know from the way that he works, like, like he likes to, like, like really... Pause. So we're, we're, I'm coming in with Stephen, so, and Drew and his assistant, Jess, and we're all sitting down at the table, and I know from the way that Drew works, like, he wants to put the wines together and call, like, he's a very, like, go with your gut, you know, so anytime that you, we would put together like finding trials or gelatin trials and copper trials, like anything that we were doing to look at, not that we were necessarily going to do it, but this is the work to have the information. You set it down and it was like, like, which one do you think is best? Pick it. And, and then that's the thing that we're doing. And there's no second guessing. Mm -hmm. There's no like, like going back, which was a very different operation from going to Soder, which was you know and, and then you know and like it's really it was a very different level uh of doing things in a different perspective on it which both perspectives work mm -hmm. they completely work so you know we're sitting there and going through the blends and putting them together and we we walked out of that blending session going okay like the wines are there and a couple days later i got a hold of steven and i was like I don't, I don't like this wine. I don't think this is the best that it can be. And I need you to know that I have to go, I'm going to go tell, I'm going to tell Drew that I'm going to ask for another blending session. Like, like, I don't know how this is going to go, man. 
And to me, it was a lesson, a lesson in professionalism that Drew knowing uh, as the consultant still, he's losing a client. <laughs> his protege is taking over, taking his client from him, client number one, who's now, now telling him that he doesn't like the blend <laughs> he put together and asking him to redo it and take more time out. Of course, you know, I mean, Drew's gonna get paid for this, but like, he's got a lot of other things going on. And he was like, okay, we'll come sit down and, and we'll do it again. Um, and through that process, we did it again and found that the blend that we had initially put together was, was the right thing in terms of the entire look of what the wines were gonna look like for the 17 vintage. And he still did it graciously. Mm -hmm. He was getting paid, but he did it graciously you know, <laughs> as well. And that was, that was to me like, okay, I think that, I think that we can come back to the relationship. Um, I, I think that there's space to do that because in the end, we actually are, we're chasing the same goal. Um, we want to make great wine. Um, we want to, want to honor Stephen's farming, you know, and I drew the same way. Like once the, the farming is so critical from what Stephen does and he does it better than anybody else that I've ever met and with more, um, more honesty and, and I hate the word passion. We'll find some other word. Whatever's the, the synonym for, for passion. Enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, enthusiasm. Um, you know, he does, it for, he does it for ethical and moral reasons that are critical to his own well-being. And that's, that is an odd thing to find with anyone in any level of work. Um, uh, and, you know, I think both Drew and I wanted to honor that. Um, and then it took, it took a lot more time for us to, to, he and I, to connect back together. It was really last summer where we were, uh, we had the same distributor in, uh, in the Midwest and he and I basically sat on a bus together for three days and just talked. Um, and we laughed a lot and um, we argued about some stuff and, um, and we found, found, found a way back to the thing that was, that kind of healed, I think some of those riffs. Uh, that guy can hold a grudge. <laughs> He, he, has, he has often said, like he often has said, just said to me, like when things aren't like going quite the way once, he's just like, I'll burn it all down. I'll burn it down. And I'm like, let's find another, I'm like, okay. But like, let's find another option. Um, but I, I appreciate like that, that, that kind of like, uh, this is how deeply I'm into this mm -hmm. is that I will, I will give it all up. Mm -hmm. I will give it all up. Um, you can be a challenging person to work for <laughs> that kind of personality sometimes. Um, but I'm, I'm, I think that when the foundation is laid, I mean, relationships don't always get repaired. That, I mean, that's, that's how it goes. But when, when we can do the work, I find it critical to do so. And, and maybe that's, you know, back to where I wanted to work in conflict mediation <laughs> is that I like, I like <clears throat> sticking myself right in the middle of it and find, finding a way forward if there, if there is one. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think it's valuable, especially in a place where like, I continue to work for other people. I don't own my own brand. I don't have an intention to. Um, I, I think that my work is better done helping other people get to the vision that they hold, that they may not, they may not know how to do it, uh, but they can, see, they can see the path that they wanna be on. And I, you know, through my education and, and uh, through my own personality, I'm really good at the listening, interpretive, mediating um, practice Mm -hmm. piece of that and you know I, I think right now the the greatest thing that happens to me every year with any of the wines that we make at Antiquum Farm 
is that when we get to the point just before bottling where we're tasting through them at that last point and I either Steven says it or he doesn't say it because he he has it's really fun to taste with him in the cellar because there's just all like he's very con contemplative um, he would say that he doesn't know he doesn't like know about wine that way like he doesn't have the language for it so he's not really sure but he's he's such a gut guy that you can tell like the intuition is there and I can see him where he says it and be like, this really reminds me of the season or this reminds me of the farm or this takes me back to X, Y, and Z. And if there's a, if there's, there's a story for him that comes out of the, out of the wine, that means that we got it. Mm -hmm. And that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Like, like I don't need praise. I certainly don't need points. Don't tell the critics that like they're useful for selling shit sometimes, but, uh, I just, I just need the, the person who set this vision in place to see themselves in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's a fucking amazing gift. Um, and I've, it's a weird practice to get into because this practice of making wine is so overblown um, and egotistical. And I think it ends up being kind of gross a lot of the time. Uh, and the, the same sort of like rock star chef, rock star winemaker, it's just like, you, you, do know that like we're just kind of food processing and like like we're providing people sustenance i mean wine exists so people don't die from giardia you know or whatever was floating downstream you know in the middle ages during the bubonic plague like we've turned it into this which i'm, I'm thankful for but that's not that's not the the like the heart of the matter to my mind still follows the other thing. And I, you know, of course I can recognize that I'm sitting here doing a podcast <laughs> and, and on video, which seems a little maybe disingenuous. Um, I, I, can, I can see how that is true and can reflect on it, but we don't, there's, there's, there's another way, there's another way forward. Um, and the joy that I find is in the satisfaction of, of the people that I'm doing the work for, mm -hmm. you know, who set it out to begin with. Um, yeah. Maybe like a wine, it's, it's better than dysentery. Sure, it would be a, maybe a good thing to, <laughs> thing to sell here. This sure is better than shit in your pants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, so, so tell me about, about that relationship. You, you had a relationship with Stephen from before. Yeah. Tell me about it as it becomes, as you become the official, you know, as it becomes a more official, you you were trying to see his vision through to the bottle. Tell me about building that and about kind of buying into Antiquum's sort of ethos. You know, I, um, the, the grateful part of the work that I'd done before, both at, you know, with uh, different internships, um, you know, with working for uh, Harper Voigt, with working for Soder. Um, I, I spent, when I, when I left Soder, I went and spent um, a couple weeks working for a friend in Burgundy, which I had never been. And so his cellar person broke their foot. And so I just kind of like came and, and slotted in. I happened to be in France at the time and we had dinner and he was like, what are you doing for the next two weeks? And I was like, I think I'm coming to Comblechamp to come work. Um, like that, uh, that I, I'd just been building a battery of skills and that, that depth and breadth, I hope like a university education, I hope like teaching, I hope like <laughs> the smoking pot on beaches in, in California, um, that experiential piece of it means that I can see something and have, you know, hopefully 
10 to 20 different tools for that thing. And that's part of, part of an, an interpretive schematic is that um, when, when we create worldviews that are binary, it limits our ability to, to, I think, to see clearly and do good work. It doesn't, it doesn't really, and, I, and I'm not touting myself, but like that, it, always, it doesn't always work for a lot of people. Like a lot of people need black and white. Like that's how they think about the world. That's how they operate. People need brackets and containers in order to understand their own life. And, and we certainly all do that to a measure. Um, but in this space with it, someone else's vision, I mean, the, probably the first two weeks that I was back on, on board here, fully taking charge of the winemaking with Antiquum Farm, I, I think Stephen probably was second guessing his decision <laughs> because I was just like, hey, uh, we need to sit down again and I need you to tell me the story again. And I need, to, I need, you, to, I need you to come walk with me in the vineyard and I wanna have dinner with your family. Um, I, wanna, I wanna spend time with y'all, like how, how I'm gonna stay the night here. Um, I wanna live and breathe and do this thing. And because I wanted to get the, as big of a context as possible and I still do that. Like it's ongoing because it keeps changing. I mean, part of the vitality of this place is that it's, it's not set into a pattern except the pattern that it itself has created, which means that as, as you know, nature, we are on our toes in a responsive way. I mean, uh, Stephen talks about farming by observation. Um, I, I now try to make wine by observation, which is, which is challenging because there's a lot of prophylactic th things in winemaking that you can do that don't have to do with observation because you want to control. Mm -hmm. But controlling and observation are not great bedfellows <laughs> to, to start with. Um, so being able to come here, bring this toolkit and this perspective, dive into hopefully him and into the Hagen family and into this place, and then to start to go, okay, so here's, here's the product, here's the wine. Does the wine fit what I'm understanding from this whole thing? And there are yeses, and there are sort ofs, and then there are noes. One of the noes demonstrably was we should stop using commercial yeast. Not because I have a philosophical, angsty, anti-commercial yeast thing. I don't. Like, I find it incredibly useful for certain things and for certain projects. But what is that, the reflection of using that kind of control with a methodology here that is vastly uncontrolled? So what do we, what, how do we do that? Well, we, I mean, we talked about at lunch how um, the Pinot Gris wines have shifted and now they, not only are they spontaneously fermented, they're fully through malolactic fermentation. Um, they now spend eight to nine months on lees in barrel where I would actually like for us to start bottling our Pinot Gris in August rather than in June. Um, it's still not the most ideal form that I want from them that I think is as deeply reflective of this, but we do have to respond to market things as well and take those into account. And so even within that, we I come in with the tools that I know and present to Steven and say, here are all the things that we can do or not do. Which of these makes the most sense? And hopefully over time, like it's at my own observation and my own understanding and depth that like, those questions get asked less and less, or at least they, they change into other questions, right? Mm -hmm. So we can, for instance, sort of settle this spontaneous fermentation question, and now we don't have to go back to it. Um, one of the current questions would be uh, filtering or not filtering. 
And so far since I've started, 2018, 2019, we have filtered all of the Pinot Gris because they're still incredibly turbid. Even though they might be have finished their primary fermentation and fil finished mal malolactic, that's why I would rather bottle them, you know, three to four months later so that they can actually settle and, and naturally clarify in the vessels that they are. Mm -hmm. But they're not there yet. And Antiquum Farm is not a cloudy wine uh, uh, company. <laughs> Doesn't bother me. Uh, but I'm not making wine for me. I'm making wine for the Hagen family. And so I still come to Steven and I say, hey, here's what these look like now. Here's what we can do on the other side. How do you think this will be affected? Now, if the wine, the wines were, we, we thought were detrimentally affected from filtering, I wouldn't filter, but we don't, I don't see it. Um, I, you know, filtration is not the problem. Bad filtration is the problem. Like. Like, like reverse osmosis isn't a problem. Like horrib horribly done reverse osmosis is a real problem. And you can't, you can, you can fuck it all up. You absolutely can, but it doesn't have to be that way. Like the, the technological pieces of the work are not necessarily bad. Um, I am fortunate that I've gotten to use all of them. Sometimes not so fortunate. Sometimes you get, I've gotten forced into it, but to understand how they work and, 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 and understand that when we make a decision you know, a year and a half before when we prune, we're affecting how the vine is going to grow. Mm -hmm. And when we affect that, now we're gonna affect, you know, the outcome of that. Of course, weather plays its own, its own role in that. But, you know, we start this pathway in, in this world years before we ever see something in the cellar, let alone when it's bottled and comes back out and hits the public. I mean, we're, we're looking at five-year cycles at a minimum for red wines, generally. Now, obviously that's changing and there's other options there. Um, but, but again, understanding the tools, and I don't just mean the physical tools, but like the mental ones. I mean, I've, I've, I've watched people out of their own um, needs, like get experience reduction in a cellar and just go without a plan and just start racking everything. And you go, well, yeah, but is it like, where did it come from? Is it getting worse? What are you actually doing? What's the purpose? Mm -hmm. What's the intention? Where's this product supposed to end up? Is this, I mean, if, if we're racking in, in you know, January or if we're racking in July, in order to, you know, shift reduction, where we think we're shifting reduction, well, where does that lead? Where does that lead down the line? There's always a downstream effect mm -hmm. of those things. Um, so my, my work is to bring all of that to Steven and to say, here's, here's what I think we can do. Here's what I think we should do, but here are all the other options. Mm -hmm. And to not, not be afraid of, you know, I'm not, phew, Lord knows, I, I don't, I didn't, I'm learning, learning every, every day, every day. Uh, there are things that I don't know that I'll never know. And I also have to be honest with that and not pretend <laughs> that I'm like, oh, this is definitely the right decision. Uh, and instead be, be present in, in the unknown, mm -hmm. which again is a reflection of his farming here. Mm -hmm. the, like mystery is so critical. It's absolutely critical to the work and, and so much of the industrialized wine world and the commodity wine world is getting rid of mystery. Mm -hmm. How absolutely fucking boring. How boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Was that difficult to get on board with? Was that was that? I mean, I, I assume as someone who comes from the comes from a background of production, you have that innate desire to control. So was it hard to let that go? No, and I don't. Like I, I have. N <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. I shouldn't say I have no desire for control. Um, I, th I think the control pieces are useful, but not not to beat oneself up over it is more useful. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, uh, the emotional psychological piece of this work is really interesting because you spend a lot of time alone. Um, you're alone in your own thoughts. You're alone in your own books and your own notes. You're in, in a cellar by yourself. Um, at this scale, right? Like we'll talk Oregon scale broadly, not like the the rest of the world of wine. But even but even in the rest of the world of wine, like any other you know any other sort of obviously corporate environment, you end up siloed, um, and that's just the way that companies function for the for the most part. So uh, you know that that desire. You know, we, I talked about the desire to get it right. I think is more important than a desire to control. Mm -hmm. um, I don't need for it to be my way. My way, my way might actually not be the right way. So I need it to be the right way for this thing, and I can I can get myself out of it. Like always, get myself out of it. Um, and and I, I mean, I don't think that if we're if we're looking at sort of that space between subjectivity and objectivity, um, my my mind works on on a sort of a pulling of that that is not that those two things are opposite but they're in tension with one another and it's always sort of this you know rubber banding back and forth mm -hmm. so if we look at control and whatever the opposite not control is it's always vacillating you know from one to the other but it's but it's also multi-dimensional not like a star trek kind of thing but like like there's there's a you know there are there's a whole picture um, to it and it moves and it rotates and it actually does, doesn't stay on an axis, you know, on an XY kind of axis um, And it and then it'll move over here like it, it's almost and I, I'm not super deep into it But it's sort of that like, you know, like in like like string theory kind of wave particle sort of sort of movement and um, I, I think that I've I've ended up in unique places where that kind of thought process isn't disregarded it's not always helpful <laughs> like if i was going to teach someone about the work that is not what i would talk to them about <laughs> be like hey do you know do you want to try to be like in two different places at the same time like this will be really interesting um that's not that's not what we're trying to do but um it, it's how i i i really do think about the i think about the work mm -hmm. uh yeah I don't know if that got to the question. I can't remember the question. I lost was. the question it's too. Okay. Yeah, waves and particles. <laughs> I'm sure I was asking about physics, so I'm probably yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, let's talk about Heisenberg's uncertainty <laughs> principle. Good. So here's the thing. <laughs> so what what is it about the Antiquum setup, the design that appeals to you? What what is it you're, you you talk about? You talk about making Stephen happy by producing a wine that makes him think of the season, think of the place. So yeah. what, what is it about the place? What is it about the, the cycle here that you're trying to show, showcase? Um, that it is, um, it is intimately him. I mean, that, that really is absolutely critical. Um, that it's, it's deeply his family. I don't know necessarily how you communicate that in wine, but it's, it sits with me. Um, from if we're talking just you know really 
I, you know, I mentioned the, the sort of he farms by observation, um, making wine by observation comes through it. Like what, what do we see? Like we're not, we're not coming in here and being like, well, this is the section that should be X. Mm -hmm. It's what do we see in this area? How do we, how does it respond? So if, you know, if there's different ripening cycles, even just in, you know, um, six acres of Pinot Gris or 14 and a half acres of Pinot Noir, like it all ripens very differently. I mean, we'll pick six acres of Pinot Gris for over the course of, a, of, of 10, 15 days. And we'll pick Pinot Noir on the 14 and a half acres from th for three weeks, just trying to get the pieces like in their, in the best form that we can for that season and that, and that time. And, you know, we have no pressure. Like I don't have to turn tanks. Um, I don't have to, I don't have to do any modification in the cellar. We have plenty of cellar space to do exactly the thing that we want to do, which is a great benefit. Mm -hmm. um, that's an, that's an enormous benefit. Um, I think what this what this place has shown is um, certainly from a chemistry standpoint a very odd chemistry like getting close to kind of holy grail shit. Um, Pinot, Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley has a problem, and the problem is that it has basically too much malic acid. So that when we're getting in most on most vineyard sites, that doesn't go for everything. There are some vineyard sites that that don't have this issue. Um, most vineyard sites that I have seen, you get to a point of ripeness and you end up with two and a half to three grams of malic acid. So say that you you come in with a pH of three four or three five. Once you you'll drop out some malic, um, you know through through fermentation, some of it will get chewed up in primary. So say you're, say you're, you know, you're coming in, you know, two to two and a half grams and, but now your pH, because there's potassium in a cold soak, like the pH is already starting to go up because it's, it's binding with tartaric acid. So you're starting to see, you know, maybe shift down, maybe shift up. If you do whole cluster, especially a lot of it, you're going to watch that pH shift a little bit more. You go through ML here on Pinot Noir and you can easily hit, end up in a three, eight, three, nine sort of space. Um, you know, microbiologically, we talk about 3.8 as sort of the maximum for microbial stability in, in, in red wine, wine in general. It's not necessarily true, but we'll just talk about it as being generally true. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that though the wines start to shift their shape. So the higher that the pH goes, essentially the, the more drawn out that the wine gets and the less that it is holding together. And, and so it gets kind of flabby. Mm. The way that we alter that and the way that we change that is that we make acid additions. Now, it's not a secret. It's totally fine to do that. That's not, that's not an, an issue. It simply is part of the work and that's totally okay part of the work. The reason that Antiquum Farm is the holy grail is that, I mean, maybe a gram of malic acid for Pinot Noir specifically, coming in on pHs that are barely 3-1 and bricks and ripeness that are pushing into 24, 25, sometimes 26, with no dehydration, plump, beautiful fruit, that basically, like I once told Stephen that working for him and making wine here makes me a worse winemaker. <laughs> because, because I don't have like, uh, that that full battery of skills I talk about, I actually I actually don't use here. I'm actually mostly presenting them and going, nope, 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 nope. Great, you know. So so I was taught in making Pinot Noir 
that you know we needed to do two three punch downs a day i mean archery summit back in the day like when it first started when gary andrus was there and i think even with sam Tannehill, and maybe when anna started like it was like six punch downs a day like just and the idea is that you know pinot noir is this really thin skin fragile grape variety it doesn't have a whole lot of phenolic material so if you want to get tannin and color out of it like you've got to do extraction it's why there's so much recommendation um, for certain schools of thought particularly with pinot noir about using um, color extracting enzymes you know like in in cold settling like like that's part of that picture as well and then you add an enzyme and you can start to deteriorate the skin the you know um, senesce the skin walls and you start to get more color into it and it actually holds it together really well and the wines look brilliant because all of a sudden color became like this absolutely vital thing to, to have in wine which Pinot Noir doesn't have so in, you know we we end up you know trying to make shit look like Merlot or Cab rather than look like Pinot Noir which is totally fine and it works um, and then everything was fine uh, but with Antiquum Farm, with the kind of ripeness that we get at these pH levels, like, I might do a punch down a day. Maybe. Like, it is, it is going in and letting the wine, just pushing the cap back into the must so that, you know, so that it stays biologically healthy. Mm-hmm. And then just going about my day. Like, I'm horrible at this. <laughs> I'm really, I'm a really bad winemaker. Um, like that's the kind of thing that that if if you weren't observing what was going on in the vineyard you would go oh this is what i'm supposed to do because this is how i i was taught to do it or or the the framework in which it should be done mm-hmm. it's not it's not useful um in that sense like it's good to have that because uh, someday i may may make other wine that needs something different i do make other wines that need other things that are different and being attuned to the thing that you see in front of you um, that observational piece of it uh, so that you know we can we can i leave pinot noir on skins for 30 or 40 days and the caps never fall you know this sort of old i press when the cap falls whatever like what if your cap never falls you know what are you doing then um i'm, I'm i sometimes i feel like i'm making tea more than i'm making wine i mean <laughs> like really seriously uh it's it's such an extraordinary thing to be pushed to my own limits by the ingenuity of someone else mm-hmm. that comes through knowing them, mm-hmm. not of my own doing. You know, I'm, I'm the benefit of other people's largesse and I always have been and I'm so grateful for it. Um, I'm still responsible. Uh, one of, one of the, the, I don't know if this was a soderism, but this is one that I walked away with was the successes are everyone's and the fuck ups are mine. And that's like, like I get to share when we do good work. I get to share that with Stephen and give, have him, have him be the one who gets the credit for it because it is him. Mm-hmm. The wines are him. I'm, I'm just a stopgap, preventing vinegar. <laughs> that's that's my job. My job is vinegar prevention. Vinegar prevention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Quite an adventure here. Not trying to run a vinegar factory. So tell me about the about the industry that you've seen in, in Oregon. What what is what are the changes you've seen in Oregon since you sort of started? What, what what's mm-hmm. different between then and now? And, and and where do you see it going in the future? You mean besides everything? Besides everything. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's some really good things. I, I I was glad that I got to see a little bit of the time before JFW Jackson Family Wines 
officially came in, um, uh, you know, that, that was sort of a, a watershed moment, I think, for the industry at large. I mean, the reality is, is that a lot of it, <laughs> a lot of it was a little out of proportion. I mean, the, the vineyards that they bought, the only reason that it became a real issue is that uh, PBV who planted those vineyards didn't have a winery. So all the fruit was being sold. And it was, the vineyard sites were really good. They weren't always managed great, but the vineyard sites often trumped the management of them. Maybe we should use a different word than trumped. I'll have to find a different <laughs> word. Um, not my favorite word these days. Uh, so, you know, so they're owned, they're owned by a California entity already. Like, to, like, to pretend that they weren't is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and Jackson family wasn't the only one who bought those vineyards. Chateau Saint-Michel bought them. Um, uh, uh, Domaine Drew in Oregon bought one of them. It just so happened that JFW bought the most of it because I think they're sometimes more of a real estate company than they are a wine They have some of the best winemakers in the world, for sure, uh, but they like land, uh, and that's a smart, that's a smart business uh, to be in, uh, without question. Um, so I, I was glad to be here before that. I'm glad to see that happen. I, I got to watch through my time with Soder because we bought fruit from, um, uh, from Zena Crown and from Grand Moraine, the kind of relationship that happened between Tony Soder and um, folks from California who knew him from a different part of the world. Um, the admiration that I saw, like something to aspire to mm -hmm. uh, in, that, in that kind of thing that like, like you know, other people, other people might get kicked out, um, but they came to Tony to talk to Tony, mm -hmm. right? Like other people just got their contracts cut. Uh, and I think today Soder still buys from, from both of those vineyards and is one of the few companies that still may, mm -hmm. may be doing that if they are. Um, so I think that that, that was, a, that was a, a big sort of sea change and, and we saw, you know, the trickle down from that is that when you have, a, uh, for Oregon, a lot of vineyard land being purchased and then repurposed, then it starts trickling down where all of a sudden every, every winery of a certain size down that chain starts scrambling and going, oh, we need to go buy vineyards or we need to do this. And so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of capital that got spent, you know, 2012 to 2015 with people securing and shoring up mm -hmm. um, vineyard, vineyard sourcing to, to uh, make sure that their own supply uh, was, was guaranteed. Um, and that also starts to trickle down. So if, you know, if winery, the big winery buys this much land and then the winery next down buys this land, that also cuts other people out of the picture. And it just, you know, Bishop Creek was a great example of that. Bishop Creek didn't have a winery and sold to maybe five or six, five or six different, or Bishop Creek Vineyard sold to five or six different wineries and they all got when Nicholas J bought it. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, I don't know, maybe 15 acres mm -hmm. and it's still, still has an effect. Mm -hmm. um, so sourcing, sourcing grapes has, has been a challenge. Um, there have been a lot of larger plantings coming in in the past few years, which now creates another challenge um, that we are, uh, have had overabundant um, yields for years. Now we have backed up inventory supply uh, there's just not enough shelf space around the country for Oregon Pinot Noir, even though we like to pretend, you know, you look at Nielsen data from the past few years and they kept touting this like 17% um, year over year increase in scanner data. And, and you're just like, yeah, but when you start at zero, like 17% is still, <laughs> technically is still zero, but like 17% like is nothing. Like a bottle? Like, give me, give me a fucking break. Like, and, and that's not even capturing, you know, that's only scanner data and, and not the majority of the wines, but the majority of producers in Oregon um, don't do UPCs. 
of course, they get put on in stores and that kind of thing, depending on people run their businesses. But if, if there's no P UPC data, it doesn't apply. Like our, all of our wines being bought direct to consumer don't have UPC on them. We're like no one's scanning them coming out of their winery, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So like the, the, the data is a bit of a misnomer. And I think there was a, there's been an encouragement for investment, which isn't a bad thing necessarily, but at a place where we're having a hard time now in COVID selling wine and you're seeing discounting and discounting and discounting and discounting and people are trying to sell Pinot Noirs from 2015 that were 50 to $70 coming down to 30, 25 if they can get it blind somewhere. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's a big issue. Now on, on that side of it though, the recommendation in this past year for California I think was to pull out 30,000 acres of grapes in order to reset the market. That's the entire acreage of vineyard plantings in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, Washington was recommended either six or 8,000 acres to pull out. I don't know if they did or not, um, but that was there. There has not yet been a re recommendation in Oregon to decrease vineyard acreage. It will happen though, if we keep going the direction that we've been going. Some, you know, maybe fortunately we're limited by land. The economics actually are more challenging here than they are in Washington or California. So you've got to be more savvy um, about how you, you know, look at your capital expenditures. Uh, but like that is, that is both an opportunity and a challenge. And I think those two things, again, if we're talking about tension, they're always hand in hand mm -hmm. with one another. It's not, it's not one without the other. Um, and it's it, how, how people find their way through it is what I think really launches on, especially on the financial side, and then eventually on the sales and marketing side, probably somewhere in production as well. But like when, if you're looking for success, you've got to navigate the challenges and opportunities all the time. And I don't mean to do a SWOT analysis on this, mm -hmm. um, but, but I think it's really, it's really, really critical. I mean, my, my mind, I, I do a little bit of consulting work. I make wine for another winery in Eugene um, called Civic Wines. That's all natural wine. Maybe that's a, a, a place to touch on as well. Um, my, that work for me as it is with Inticuum is all about shoring up the business. Like if we're talking about ultimate purpose here at Inticuum, it is to ensure that if Steven's kids, Jewel and Daisy want to take over this for themselves, that the company is set up for them to do that. That is the most important thing out of all of it. I don't want to see businesses fail. I certainly don't want to see wine businesses fail. Um, and we are going to see out of COVID that there are going to be some, we won't see it for a couple of years because everyone has built up inventory, right? No one's going to be like, I'm out. And then, because then, then they've got a like fire sale inventory and people don't want to do that. It's not smart. You know, your, your cost of goods have been inlaid <laughs> sometimes for six or seven years mm -hmm. while you're just sitting on cash you know, that's losing value, really losing value at a, at a certain point. Um, we're going to see brands shut down out of this. And I shouldn't say brands, we'll see labels shut down. And a lot of that also has to do with, you know, 20 years ago, there were a lot of retiree kind of hobbyists that came into the industry and were buying vineyards and like looking for a lifestyle kind of thing that have always been kind of muddling, muddling through. Um, and, they, and they won't make it. They won't make it. And I don't want to see that for this place. Mm -hmm. Even as beautiful it is, as much as the work, get done, work gets done, um, it still has to be, I mean, this is the part of sustainability we leave out a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. It's got to be financially sustainable. Mm -hmm. Like really, really sustainable. I, I wish whew, and I hope that new entrants, no matter their age, no matter their financial background, no matter what they did before, that when they come into this business, that they'd stop thinking of it as a fucking gold mine 
and start thinking of it as a prison <laughs> and a burial ground. <laughs> uh, a t-shirt. We might have to edit that one. No, that's fine. It's totally fine. I, re I really, I really do because you're gonna, you're gonna sink a lot in, and you're gonna struggle to get it, get it back out. And you, and we need to be aware so that we better plan. Some of the best financial advice I ever received um, was, was, and particularly for this business, was take, take the amount of capital that you think that you need and double it which is not the Oregon way. It's like, we don't even wear shoestrings, right? Like, like we're like, oh, is there a Blundy budget? Because uh, it has no shoestrings on it. It's just, you know, for me, it's, it's pig trampled uh, boots. But like, we, we run shorter than shoestring. And I watched, I've watched a number of companies and I've watched marriages fall apart. Um, I've, I've watched um, uh, people unhealthily, you know, dive into their own inventory and become alcoholics and not find a way back out. I've, I've seen people commit suicide, have overdoses. Like there's a, there's a dark piece to this that it, that is financially related. Mm -hmm. And you know, those, those pieces are things that I think that I, I wish we had better avenues to talk to new entrants in and that they would, that they would listen. <laughs> People, people with money, uh, especially, don't listen sometimes when people tell them that you're not seeing this correctly. Mm -hmm. This isn't like your other business, you know. Um, we're not turning widgets, and uh, if you want to turn a widget, you better bring 20 million to the table um, because it, that's what it's going to take. Yeah. Uh, what other changes? Oh, the natural wine thing. That's been fun. <laughs> I didn't realize you made Civic's wine. I do. You made Craig's wine. Yeah, I, I started right at the beginning. Um, and, you know, it was, it was one of those quiet things that has grown. Um, not, not in terms of what, I mean, Civic is as well. It's doubling production this year. Again, like we, we saw an opportunity and, um, and there's the financial wherewithal to do that, which is great. Um, it also means that likely someone is losing on the other end. Like we, I picked up other, other uh, wineries contracts that I knew were they were getting rid of I was able to pick up because finding you know especially in the in the world of natural wine whatever that means which is not a whole lot sometimes um, uh, to my mind if we're not starting at or organic I don't need you to be certified but organic practices no glyphosate if we're not starting at that point we're not making natural wine mm -hmm. Like we, we can't call it that. And I know people who do, and it pisses me off. Like there's gotta be more honesty. I mean, the whole movement is about transparency. Like there's this political angstiness that goes with that and transformation and like saying what something is and people still hide because they're afraid they'll lose their market position if they say what they actually are doing. Mm -hmm. I think that that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, but as a result of the increase of people looking for natural wine, most people do want to try to start at the organic level. There are so few organic and biodynamically farmed vineyards that are not 100% dedicated to other projects or either through contracts or that someone owns as an estate vineyard. Um, we've been lucky with Civic to get into some really um, really great places like Calhoun, mm -hmm. um, Johan, um, Jubilee Vineyard in Yolamity, which has gone fully organic um, as of this year. And, and to be able to say, if, if you do this work, we will pay more money for it. Mm -hmm. 
Like we're not going to ham, you know, we're not we're not going to give you shit and be like, well, that's up to you. We'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. Like if if we don't put our money there, which it goes for so many things, if we don't put our money there, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and the money the money will speak. Uh, you could you could walk that back to to Soder and Acreage contracts. Mm -hmm. The money will talk. If we take on the risk, then I'm gonna I'm gonna be on your ass about it. But like. The, if that's the relationship that we can have and it goes well, then then we can start we can start doing this work and really talking about it. So it's I think it's been interesting to see that I think it's more of a movement really of wine come about. Um, I think sometimes the unfortunate thing is that the the practitioners of it are are often excited about like the meaning of it to them, um, who may not have the winery experience to understand the ramifications of the decisions. Mm -hmm. um, like you can still make funky aldehydic reductive Britannomyces mousy VA ridden wines in the natural they can be cloudy and you know more like sour beer and like that's kombucha you know we have all of these other beverages that have analogs for natural wine but not knowing not knowing why or what or how and being able to walk that down I think is a travesty it's why when people like Chad Stock make natural wine that guy knows every single ramification of what he is doing. And, and I think it's sometimes unfortunate is that, you know, when he still had Minimus and was out there with craft and, and origin, that he's, he's, you know, doing this work is that people, people fall into the wine and don't understand what goes behind mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there's a larger, like, cultural thing that's in there as well that, you know, we think that, uh, you know, famous people on Instagram, it just happened overnight. And it's like, well, that person was actually working for years. Mm -hmm. You just didn't know it <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because, you know, um, because what is it? Ocean Eyes wasn't on SoundCloud yet. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Like, like that didn't just happen, mm -hmm. you know, old Billy and Phineas just digging into their bedroom and, you know, making, making shit. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, mm -hmm. like that takes time. Mm -hmm. I wish I'd written that song. It's a great song. <laughs> How are we doing on time? 15 minutes? Okay, I got that, that goes to one minute quickly. I'm, it's okay, we got the audio back up just in case. I got, I, I, got, I got one more question for you and I'm almost afraid, I'm almost afraid to ask it, but I'm gonna, we're gonna wrap it up anyway with some philosophy for you. Oh, Jesus. This, we or, excuse me, hey Zeus, what is, uh, okay. What, what, is, what is the purpose of wine in society? Um, I, I, I think I don't know. And, it's it's be because it's like it's messed up. Um, it's hard to you can't ignore, for instance, that it is an alcoholic beverage. Um, I I know that there are um, teetotaling movements within Oregon um, trying to drive legislation to continue to restrict our industry, and I don't think that we're unique because of that. I think that's happening. That happens all across the country because, you know, our are, we have a, we are the weirdest country. Uh, you know, pro prohibition um, really messed with everything. I mean, we would we would have been on a very different path um, without that. And those those movements don't stop um, for whatever reason. And there are pieces of it that are that are good. Like if we if we look at health, it is hard to argue that ethanol is good for your health in any amount. I don't care how how much uh, you know resveratrol. I think, I think that's the thing that everyone talks about in red wine, like you try to convince it. Um, but I can also, I also know that like, it's not the same as liquor. 
Um, man, I love whiskey. Uh, and it's not the same as it's not the same as beer, but beer beer is actually lower alcohol. I mean, almost across the board. Like, show show me. I mean, certainly you know West Coast IPA and doubles and triples and um, you know Belgian styles. Like, you can push up into wine sort of alcohol levels, but uh, most of it's not not that. So that's a, that's a big cultural piece is like, what are, what are we contributing to? Um, there's been some recommendations recently that I've heard that the wine industry should attach itself to, um, for marketing, marketing and sales purposes to, uh, to a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, we, uh, maybe not all of us, but, uh, and I don't remember this, but the, you know, the French paradox of the you know, 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, whenever that was on 60 Minutes of, you know, smoke a pack of cigarettes and live till you're 90, be sure to drink some wine, you'll be fine. Um, that sort of confusion, but like there are broader cultural elements that, that aren't so isolated into any single sort of intake that we do into our system. I mean, if, like if we're actually talking about a healthy lifestyle, for sure wine can be part of a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I think you might have to also act, ar argue that some tobacco use can also be part of a healthy lifestyle, which no one wants to make that argument. Like that is a dubious argument to make and speak in public at all. But what are we really talking about? There's that piece of it. Um, I'll let other people fight that out. Uh, I think that, you know, from, from my own love of this world, um, the places where it draws people in together, um, to sit at a dinner table, uh, to share anything that comes as a result of that, which isn't just because of wine, but they're, you know, and uh, I love to cook, um, preparing a meal, like the, the, the deepness. I don't know if you, all, if you all have ever seen the movie um, uh, Babbitt's Feast. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should go, you should go watch it. It's, it's one of the most, I think, it's one of the most foundational movies that I've ever seen in terms of what life at a table can do in changing the hearts of people. Um, and it's essentially this woman who has to, I think she flees France and she goes into like this dark, like Norse country where it's just, everything's just drab. Uh, and she wants to cook this meal for the people of the village and they're all hesitant and they don't understand it and they don't want the food is and all their food is very like porridge driven or you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And she's buying in, you know, products and foodstuffs from, from um, foreign places and bringing this in and, and cooks this incredible meal for them. And it foundationally changes the way that they relate to one another. Like there's something about the way that our, our biology responds to deliciousness. Um, there's something about like the good, I mean, you think about like, like real honey, like the taste of something that comes from the earth that is absolutely the best thing that you have ever tasted that like bears the life of a wildflower in it. And it is transformative. And, and if you can do that and you can taste that, then I think that what you can see is that goodness does exist. And maybe especially right now, where particularly in this country, it feels like there is very little good. Like wine actually has the ability to bring goodness into the world. Um, I, I had a, this thought yesterday of exactly that when I was, I was trying to sort of assess, I think that, that I drive around a lot, I have a lot of free time to think <laughs> or listen to podcasts. Um, <laughs> But like how, how to say what wine is. Mm -hmm. And it is, I think it might be the simplest and truest thing to just say that wine is good. It leaves it open. Mm -hmm. 
and for people to figure out and for it to find a place in culture. Because um, American culture, it is not a culture of, of things that are delicious. It's a culture of things that are fast, things that are immediate. Um, we don't do well with delayed gratification, um, which is a especially challenging thing in the wine industry because it is, it is the land of delayed gratification. I mean, when we talk about that, like that span mm -hmm. from, from pruning to years later of getting this thing onto the table. I mean, I can't imagine being uh, Domaine Lopez de Heredia where like their current vintages are like for the like Grand Reserva Tempranillo or like 1998, <laughs> right? Like, like that's, I don't have that kind of money. Um, I don't know anyone who does either. Uh, but like, can, can wine lead us to a place of patience? Mm -hmm. And not that things don't have to happen. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because the, the product can be a patient product, but the work is very immediate because the fruit will rot. If we don't get it off the vine, we don't, we don't get it. Mm -hmm. We don't get it. So there, there are things that, of, of change that wine embodies that need to happen immediately. Um, I think from, you know, from looking at our own issues with diversity within the broader wine industry, but particularly in Oregon, uh, I'm on the, the task force for diversity, uh, um, equity, belonging, and inclusion. That's part of the, uh, now the WVWA charge, um, and I started on that task force last year. We did not know that this is where we would be. We had planned for this year to be a year of <laughs> taking surveys and doing education. Um, and instead it's become a year of, um, we've got to get out and get things done through pledges. I don't know if you've seen the WVWA wine, wine industry pledge, mm -hmm. um, but um, pushing ourselves to move forward, not, not as, you know, another pillar within the within the the industry, but as as the ground floor, mm -hmm. and that is a hard thing to convince people of. But I think that if we look at the immediacy that wine needs to be made in, but the the patience that it comes with, we can also know that that work, while it's immediate, it's also long term. Like it's it's not it's not, there are things that can be done overnight, but the work is not done overnight. Like it is it is always. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a struggle. I mean, part of, part of my work in, that I did in philosophy um, was in ethics. And um, there's, there's a, uh, a dead, now dead Jewish guy named Emmanuel Levinas who, who talks about the face and the other. And within that, his sort of, his ethical like motif was this sort of, you know, we can, we can, make all the proclamations and make all the spaces and say all the things that we want to do in an analytical mode of ethics. But what happens when we're encountered with a face and, and recognizing that in encountering that face, that face is other from us and we are other from it. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, if I, if I encounter, um, say someone who is homeless, um, and I give them a dollar, the temptation is to walk away thinking that I did something good. Um, but what about the next person who needs a dollar? What about the next person who, who, you know, who needs, who needs a bite of food? Or, uh, like there, there's not a stopping point of it. To me, that, that echoes wine mm -hmm. and that goes agriculture. Um, and that may be a little bit too esoteric. <laughs> no, but I, but, but I, I uh, but I think that there's, I think that there's life there. But we, but we need to find a better way. Mm -hmm. And and I think in particular, 
what Oregon makes up less than 1% of wine production in the entire world. The Willamette Valley makes up barely 1% of wine production in the United States. Um, we are, we have seen ingenuity in this particular industry since its inception, knowing that if it didn't do things that were different, it was not going to succeed. I mean, things like Pinot in the city, right? Like OPC, IPNC, like these incredible things that we, we take for granted today were groundbreaking. They're technically still groundbreaking. I do not know of another wine region that goes around to cities all over the country, you know, two or three cities a year where 60 producers all doing the same dumb thing all get together. What was it? We were, we had on, a, I got on a plane in Portland one time. I think we were going to Houston and I just looked around and I think as Robert Britton got on, he went, well, I guess if this goes down, this is the end of it. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, God, old man, like, do you, yeah. Okay. I guess it needed to be said. And it was really funny. Um, but like who, I don't know. I don't know anyone else in, in than the wine world that does those things mm -hmm. and does them with graciousness and excitement toward one another. If we can do that, we can lead to solve these other problems. Um, uh, Rachel Kendall Adams. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that's, I think I'm saying all three of her, her names correctly. Um, with assemblage. Uh, what a, I mean, that is as much of a pioneering effort as as David Lett and Charles Curry. It's it's not wine, but it's wine. And if like we have to be on the side of supporting those kinds of things because quite frankly, and this gets a little crass and this is this is this is crass in a different way than I am normally. Uh, it's challenging because there's also when more people drink more wine and we ignore those people, we do so at our own peril and our own survival. So if we're talking about And it takes us taking a step back to be open and to see. Like when I hear when I hear stories from people of color talking about going to wine tastings and getting short poured, like who I, I can't I can't even imagine what that must feel like, and I can't imagine the person who does that. Like it's just a it's just another person. Like and they're, and they're going to talk about their experience and they're that this is a problem when you're a moron <laughs> like you should be paying attention and and two that you think that now you don't become an idiot to them and that you 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 have now lost not only one potential consumer you have lost hundreds and that one simple stupid thing i mean it's just it's it's bonkers to me it's absolutely bonkers to me oregon can lead the way the whole state, not just the Willamette Valley, all of us can lead the way. And I, and I think that we, we should, because we have the capacity to, and we've done it before. Oh, that got preachy. <laughs> this whole thing feels preachy. My dad, my dad will be really proud. <laughs> the proselytizing gene. Maybe you know. he won't be proud of the swearing. I know he won't be proud of that, but he'll be like, yeah, that was a pulpit. <laughs> yeah. Give a man a microphone, you know. I know. My conversion rates are on fire. 
It's really good. Well, Andrew, that's all the questions we have for you today. Obviously, we could, we could stay here and talk to you all day, but we've run out of camera battery, so we're just, <laughs> we're just on audio only now. So, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Oh, maybe another time. Okay, another time. Another some uh, some other time. Maybe maybe in a few years. Well, because well, the, yeah, there's a lot. That's the plan. There there's a lot, and I and I shouldn't take up more time. Um, yeah, but I, I, maybe maybe just one thing is pr- in particular. Um, to young people who are, and particularly young people who don't have the money, who want to get into this thing, to do it, but do it from your own perspective and not because you think that you ought or should, or you have to fit in some way. Um, Like it's this interesting thing where the, the great variety of Pinot Noir as diverse as it, as it is within itself, I think it actually sometimes kills the diversity and, and we're struggling against it and, um, and trying to find ways. Pinot Noir is going to be dominant. I mean, it makes up almost 20,000 acres of planted, you know, uh, acreage here in the Willamette Valley, out of the 30. And the next closest is Pinot Gris, which is less than 4,000. And the next closest is Chardonnay, which is less than 2,000. So, you know, while we're out there being like, Gamay, like Gamay doesn't register, you know, Riesling doesn't even register anymore, right? Like, we need to be honest about the fact that this thing is going to be Pinot Noir for the next 50 years, maybe long, maybe longer than that. Um, and it should be. Um, but it, it doesn't, you know, we can have different parts of the industry and still be whole mm-hmm. um, and be encouraging to people who want to do things differently. And sometimes I have heard the discouragement from a pioneering class of people in this business who are really trying to protect what they built as they should, but not at the cost of other people. And that's a hard thing to balance. Um, and I wouldn't want to see young people get discouraged in any form, whether, I mean, find a, find, find a mentor, um, find someone who, who you has your values, maybe someone who doesn't, I don't know. That's always interesting to be mentored by someone who doesn't see things exactly the way that you do. Um, that's my, that's my need for conflict <laughs> coming through. Um, B? Yeah. Good? Okay. I'm allergic. Oh, this is the worst place to be. Uh, Lily, I'm so sorry. Um, you know, find, find mentors, find people that you can trust. Um, do the work. Because uh, it can feel like I need to get it done. And, and that's, that's a struggle, especially on the production side of being like, cause you can, you can enter the market tomorrow if you want. I mean, quite, quite literally. Like if you have, if you have $2,000 to grab a ton, done. There's plenty of fruit on the market. There's space to make wine, but, but that's an incredible thing to be able to do. Right? Like that's, a, that's actually really amazing. Don't do that. Like s- sweat, blood, tears, craft, intention and then put together a sales plan before you ever put a grape in a cellar. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing more important than looking at the viability of your dreams so that you don't have to kill off your dreams in order to make a buck. And if you don't plan well, you're you're going to you're going to make sacrifices anyway. You'll make more if you don't plan well. Mm-hmm. Good advice. Good way to end, I think. Good. Thank you so much for your time, for your amazing hospitality. Today, of course. For uh, sharing your story and your thoughts, and we're going to go ahead and let you off the hook. Great. Thanks. Thank Great to be you. with you all.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.